Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. For the final time in 2022, because this right here is your getting over year in review for what may have been the wildest 12 months in the history of professional wrestling. That's right, the Silver King is back once again. Vintage Chris Vanini will be along for the ride momentarily, and we will be breaking down the biggest stories of the year, starting in January all the way through the end of December. And trust me, folks, this year is about a lot more than just the bloodline, Vince McMahon, and CM Punk. A lot went down over the last 12 months, and the Silver King, along with Vintage, we are here to break it all down for you in one nicely wrapped episode to conclude this year. But as we begin any episode of this podcast, allow the Silver King to get started by reminding you that this show is all about divide. So please, one last time in 2022. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for the Silver King for Vintage. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave us a five-star rating on Apple. Take a couple extra moments. Leave a five-star written review. Tell people why they should subscribe to this show. And if you do, we will read your five-star reviews right here on the podcast. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, not only for episode drops, news, analysis, and highlights all week long, but also so that you can vote in our 2022 Getting Over Awards. AKA the meaties nominations are officially closed. Those are all wrapped up this week and our voting will go out. In fact, by the time you're listening to this podcast, there's a chance that the voting is already open for the getting over awards, AKA the meaties. And that show is coming the first week of 2023, where we crown the best, brightest, worst, and I guess dimmest from the year that had just passed. You are going to be able to want to vote for those awards because your vote, the getting overheads, counts just as much as mine and Chris's. Once again, follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Chris, welcome to our first ever year in review episode of Getting Over. I say it's our first ever. It may actually be our last ever as well because we didn't do it for the prior years, not because things didn't happen in professional wrestling, but there was not such a wide selection of topics for us to discuss in this type of format at the end of the calendar year. But that is quite different in 2022, where major shakeups occurred both in WWE and in AEW, not to mention there were some major changes that happened overseas as well. And really, the landscape of professional wrestling entering 2023 is far different than it was when January 1st, 2022 began, when that clock turned, when midnight hit, and that year got started. So welcome to the show. Before we get started and we roll through starting January, going all the way through December, is there anything you wanted to say as we kick things off? You know, you mentioned it, but like like we said, this is we could look back at this being one of the most consequential years in the history of mm-hmm. pro wrestling. And, and there's a lot that feels big now it might even feel bigger looking back on it uh, it's also a year in which i went to wrestlemania i went to a handful of aew shows tried to get everything as much as i could in, in person so it was a fun year 
And there was a lot that went on, like you said, outside of the big things. And I'm, I'm excited to look back on it. Yeah. And you got to go to all those shows and I went to zero. Uh, none. There were there was uh, one pay-per-view. I'm forgetting which one it was. It was an AEW show in Orlando that, you know, theoretically, I guess, was in driving distance. WWE didn't have anything uh, that, you know, spoke to me that said you need to get there. The AEW show, uh, again, whichever pay-per-view it was, was ill-timed and wasn't really exciting enough for me to go and make that drive and not just do that, but stay overnight, pay for a hotel and do all that type of stuff. And, you know, I just I look at all these events that they keep booking. They're doing stuff, you know, in in England or sorry, not in England, in the United Kingdom and on the West Coast and up north, as always, in Chicago a million times a year. But South Florida, we really just get left out from these big shows. And it's been a frustration of mine for a long, long time when it comes to professional wrestling. But we're not here uh, to talk about my gripes or your personal um successes when it comes to attending major wrestling events. We're here to break down the year that was in 2022. And we're also kind of assuming here, Chris, that nothing else major happens over these last couple of days in the world of professional wrestling. But as you will note, folks, the way uh, when we break this down and we go over all the items that we're going to discuss on this show, it seemed like something was happening every single day of the year. So I wouldn't put it past us putting the show together, you know, wrapping it up, tying the bow, and really feeling good about the product that we've produced here on Getting Over in 2022. And then December 30th, December 31st, something major happening and throwing us for a loop. So let's go ahead and get started. You know, folks, we've never uh, done this format before. So Chris and I were really flying blind here to try to do a year in review episode. And don't forget, we have the Getting Over Awards coming up next week. Those also known as the Meaties. That show is still coming up. So we're going to give awards for wrestler of the year, match of the year. We're not really here to talk about the matches and the, you know, who were the best performers and the top storylines. We're actually here to talk more about newsworthy things that occurred across WWE, AEW, a little bit of Japan, and really the wrestling world as a whole. But of course, the vast majority of what we will discuss happened uh, within the confines of WWE and AEW. So we're going to kick it off in January. And day one, Chris, was an appropriate name uh, for that pay-per-view. I think it was still a pay-per-view at the time because on January 1st, we got not the biggest news of the year, but some of the biggest news of the year when Roman Reigns tested positive for COVID-19 trying to go into that pay-per-view event. He ultimately missed the show. He was supposed to defend his universal championship against Brock Lesnar in the main event. The other title match on the show uh, was Big E defending his WWE championship in a fatal four-way. And what the company decided is that with Roman Reigns unable to defend his title, we still want Brock Lesnar in a championship match. So they inserted him into that fatal four-way. And he not only won the WWE championship, but he pinned Big E for the WWE Championship. And Chris, I think even in the moment, we were dismayed, right? We were a little bit frustrated at the booking. We somewhat understood that perhaps WWE's goal was to have Lesnar come out of that show with a championship. And this was, they thought, the best way to possibly do it. Was that always going to be the case? We don't know. Were they actually going to end Roman Reigns' title reign in that moment and possibly have Reigns win the title back at WrestleMania? We didn't know, but immediately became obvious with Brock Lesnar having the WWE championship 
and Roman Reigns having the Universal Championship was that our worst fears might actually be realized because it was well reported that WWE wanted the main event of WrestleMania to be Reigns and Lesnar. And really from that moment, day one, January 1, 2022, all the way to WrestleMania, we were sitting here on this podcast concerned. Oh my God, what if they unify the titles? What is going to happen to Raw? Because Roman Reigns, of course, is on SmackDown. Yeah, I just keep thinking back, like if it didn't happen, what was the plan? Would Brock have beaten Roman? Would he have lost, then won the Rumble, then challenged Roman at Mania or something like that? I just, if any, I don't think it's been reported what the original plans were. Well, the one thing I can interject and tell you, you know, what it seemed like the plan was, was they were actually going to do a three-match series between Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar. Now, if the title changed or didn't change, I don't have those answers. I can't tell you exactly what those plans were, but it was supposed to be what was reported to be a three-match series. And I believe the plan, and this is what we discussed on the podcast when we did our ultimate preview going into the show, it seemed like the plan was for Seth Rollins to beat Big E or win at least that fatal four-way match and take the WWE Championship The theory being whoever won the Royal Rumble would probably challenge Rollins for the title. And then Mm. Lesnar Reigns would happen separately for the Universal Championship. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, a lot of the frustrations we had for the entire rest of the year dated back to that day one, the very first. Well, through through August, from January through August, I think it's fair to say. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, It all went back to. Day one. Day one. Literally the first day of the year. Yep. Yeah. And, and we've talked about that ad nauseum on the podcast. I mean, you guys can certainly go back and listen to episodes where we dive deeper on this topic. But a lot of WWE's booking problems for their first eight months of the year revolved around Roman Reigns testing positive for COVID-19. That's not his fault, but it is something that happened. But then the booking decision that was made to put the championship on Brock Lesnar instead of just having him fight someone else on the show or have Roman Reigns, uh, you know, crown an interim champion, or there's a million different things they could have done, but ultimately they had him not just win the WWE title, Chris. Let's let's remember, they compounded it by having him directly pin Big E for the title. So Big E didn't even get a spot where he could say, well, yeah, I lost the title, but I didn't get pinned, so I deserve a rematch. I want to fight Brock one-on-one, and then we get a dream match. We didn't even get that. Lesnar straight up pinned Big E, and Big E just, that was it. Yep, And if we date, of course, let's, you know, not to go back into 2021 too much, but we remember the way in which Biggie won the title on Raw pre-announcing his money in the bank cash. And it really was not an ideal scenario for Biggie, in addition to everything that happened, of course, with Lesnar and Roman Reigns. So that was just January 1st, 2022. <laughs> so four days later on the 5th, William Regal and Road Dog were among five people fired by WWE. And this just continued significant cuts that they were making across the board. Um, Regal obviously being the most surprising by far of any non-talent departures that occurred, you know, in this round after round after round of WWE cuts. And I think you and I both said, Chris, at the time, uh, yeah, AEW should pick him up as soon as they possibly can because he is extremely valuable beyond these very small on-screen role that he had in WWE. And let's not forget, that role had disappeared with the transition from NXT to NXT 2.0. Yes, right. The 2.0 had happened in, I think, September 2021. 
And so this was kind of one of the final nails in the coffin of black and yellow NXT era. Yeah. And removing all, all of Triple H's guys from the backstage. Yes. Yep. And it, this was one we were just like, just his mind for the business, the, everything he can do in developmental. It just didn't really seem to make sense uh, for WWE to do that. And as we sit here now, he may be on his way back. So yeah. <laughs> it may be going full circle throughout the complete year. But uh, uh, that was that was a surprising firing on that day. It, it really the Regal uh, release felt vindictive for Triple H yeah. because there's no reason to get rid of Regal. None. Yeah. And then that same day, that was a Wednesday on Dynamite. It made its premiere. AEW did on TBS moving, of course, from TNT. And it was a great show. Very entertaining episode. But we also saw one of the most gruesome injuries that we saw live on television this year when Ray Phoenix dislocated his elbow and was out for a significant period of time. Thought that was worth mentioning. But if memory serves, there was like a ladder propped up between maybe the ring and the barricade. And he did a move into it, dislocated his elbow. It was gnarly. I remember that. Yeah, it looked bad. I was very, very worried about that at the time. He ended up coming back like, Four months later, which is way remarkable. faster than like I thought he would. Yeah. 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 Way so thankfully faster. it was thankfully it wasn't more. But with all the stuff he does, you're always worried there's going to be some gruesome, terrible injury. And uh, it, it happened. And thankfully it wasn't worse than we thought at the time. Yeah, for sure. Now, from January 16th through the 18th, this was a string of, of WWE shows. But two major things happened. The first was Mustafa Ali requesting his release from WWE, which caught a lot of people by surprise. Not so much that he requested his release, but that he did it publicly. And WWE, obviously, he wasn't being used on TV anyway. So they just continued not using him, told him to stay home. There was some controversy. I, you know, if memory serves, I think he may have just had a kid a couple months ago. So some people thought, well, why are you angry about not being used if you're being given time off? You know, not paternity leave, but, you know, time off to be with your kid. WWE was in Chicago. I think there was an expectation that he was going to return on that show. He didn't. That's obviously where he where he lives and where he's from. And there was a whole controversy surrounding Mustafa Ali there. But the far bigger controversy was Walter, who was still in NXT at the time, being renamed Gunther. And it wasn't just that, but a leaked trademark application from WWE, trademark copyright, whichever it was, showed that WWE trademarked the name Gunther Stark. And that caused major controversy, particularly among the IWC, people who were still looking for ways to just like stab WWE whenever they possibly could, because people Googled this name and noticed that it was the same name as some obscure Nazi officer who no one had ever heard of before. He's not in our history textbooks or, you know, in high school when we read about um, World War II and and he was just some, some dude who existed. Uh, I found it, Chris, to be one of the most absurd stories of the year. WWE, yeah, they trademarked the name as they did Ludwig Kaiser, but they never called him it on TV. Walter came to the ring. He did that promo, said, my name's Gunther. And that was it. And that, that was the name, Gunther, not Gunther Stark. And again, even if it was Gunther Stark, clearly WWE had no intent, a publicly traded company, you know, that does is trying to avoid controversy on a PG show. Clearly, they had no um, plans to name this guy after a Nazi, nor would Gunther from Austria 
allow himself to purposely be named after a Nazi. I think people forget that a lot of stuff that WWE trademarks or ideas that happen behind the scenes never end up making it to TV. Do I like Walter better than Gunther? Sure. Walter was a cool name, but we were used to it. But guess what? I'm now used to Gunther and he's up. He's one of our finalists for male wrestler of the year. So I think it all worked out well for him. I, I remember where I was when you went on this rant because it, it was the AEW NXT show. I was in Indianapolis for the NCAA convention. I was walking back from, I think, Steak and Shake to my hotel. And I remember you just going off about this and how upset you were. One of my favorite being, one of my favorite rants. Yeah, for sure. about people being upset about this name change. Look, ultimately, yes, it's the name works. We like the name Gunther now. Like it's we didn't like it at the time, but it, like, it was a fine. downgrade. It, at the it, time. it worked out. It was it, it was a worked downgrade. Out. But also, like, it is fair that how did somebody at WWE just not Google it real quick and be like, eh, maybe we should just change that last name or, or something like that. Well, I think, I think, Chris, what I said at the time is someone is a fucking moron yes, in WWE yes, for, for not Googling the name and noticing this and saying, oh, well, we can't do that. Because wouldn't you like when I was researching this podcast or or my I ha- used to have a newsletter back in the day, a website, you know, you you try to find, hey, is the domain taken? Right. Like, right, like, are, right. do these things exist already? Because the last thing I would want to do is create something where someone else already has that name and then I have to do it again. So, yeah, the people behind the scenes who actually did the trademarking and, and went through this whole process, they were morons, but it wasn't malicious. And I think right. part of my rant was like, hey, if there's anyone who's going to be upset about this, it's a person who's been a WWE fan for three decades who's Jewish who is dissatisfied with the direction of the company. If anyone's going to be angry, it was me. And I wasn't angry. I just thought they were idiots for trademarking the name and not, you know, looking at it and researching it. But the people I thought were stupid were the fans. Yes. It's wild. Just kind of thinking back to that moment and and where it is, where it is now, where he's the Intercontinental champion. We hoping he gets a spot at WrestleMania up for wrestler of the year. Um, Things worked out. Things worked out. He uh, he's days away from being the longest reigning intercontinental champion since Cody Rhodes in 2011. So you have to remember wow. the last time Cody was in WWE. He's a couple days from that. And if he holds it all the way to WrestleMania, he'll be the longest reigning intercontinental champion since 1987, 1988, the honky tonk. And that's the longest ever, right? I think honky tonk is the longest ever, but honky he's going to be still way short of that ever. though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's. I didn't re- I didn't even realize that until you said it now. Wow. So, yeah, look, just because they change a name, things can work out. And yes, who knows where Gunther would be if Vince was still in charge. But again, things, but he's things, uh, things yeah. can work out for sure. Now, we're not done with January yet, because on the 29th, we got the WWE Royal Rumble, which we and you, our listeners getting overheads and the IWC as a whole completely panned. For a number of reasons, primarily because Brock Lesnar, who was already WWE champion, won the men's match. Ronda Rousey came back after her pregnancy break, won the women's match, both part timers. And then beyond that, it may have been the worst men's Royal Rumble match in history. Shane McMahon returned. He took heat for not only being in the match, but I think he may have even gone to the final five. Yeah. He reportedly played a role in booking the match. And there was heat immediately when he got backstage and reports like 48 hours later where Vince basically told Shane, you're never going to get a pop in WWE again. You're gone. So 
this was just like the culmination. It was the nadir for WWE ending a multi-month period of just really poor booking, really aggravating storytelling. The day one stuff happened with Brock Lesnar. And then you have him here in the Royal Rumble, winning it as a part-timer the same night you're having Ronda Rousey do it. And again, the men's match was arguably the worst of all time. Yeah, I I had blocked it out of my mind until I was looking at this at this list we have. And I was like, man, like that was that was a low point because like, all right, we know we're getting Brock Roman again for the unification that we didn't want. And they just completely threw away a Royal Rumble to do it. And it was like, man, things are not in a good place right now. And and it it really the Rumble, I think, is up going to be up for one of our worst shows of the year or something like that. So we don't do worst show, but the the men's Royal Rumble match is up for worst match of the year. I don't know that it's going to win it. But it deserves to be a finalist for sure. Yeah. After a couple of really good rumbles the previous few years, uh, this one was was terrible. And that was the last we saw of Shane. And who knows? It may be for I mean, maybe now that Vince is gone and stuff, who knows what's going to happen now? But it would be pretty. What what would you think, Chris, if in 2023 (laughs) the men's Royal Rumble happens and like I don't care what number it is, 17th, Shane McMahon's music comes out, okay? But he gets in the ring and immediately gets thrown over the ropes. <laughs> Look, if his if his like music by a hits, or something. If his music hits in the rubble, I'm gonna lose my mind. Everybody's gonna lose my mind. Just again, don't keep him in there too much. If you want to set him up with somebody in the rumble and then they do a matrimania, fine. No, but, no, no, uh, no, 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 no. I don't want that. I, the only thing I would accept is them playing off of last year. Sure. And just having him come in and then immediately get thrown out. I That's the only way it works, in my opinion. As good or bad as it is with Shane, whenever he shows up, people love it, man. They people pop. Love it. They do. We should also note, I don't want to overlook it, Chris, that Mickey James was in the Women's Royal Rumble as the Impact Women's Champion. First time that's, of course, ever happened. They mentioned Impact on TV. They put her over a bunch. This obviously came 2021 when she got released. Um, the whole garbage bag incident. That person, of course, got fired. But it was kind of a make good for Mickey and it popped a lot of fans to see her back in WWE, especially wearing another promotions championship. Yeah, that was cool. And again, that happened under Vince. Like you could see it It happening now under Triple H, but that happened under Vince back then. That was very cool that uh, that they did that. And it was good to see her. So let's finally move to February. And trust me, some of these months, there's not as much to talk about as there was in January. But we moved to February and on the 9th, Keith Lee made his debut on Dynamite, the Limitless one. We were psyched about it, right? We talked about 2021, him being one of the, first of all, his return was mind-boggling being called Bearcat, but then being released shortly thereafter when it obviously didn't work. He made his uh, debut on Dynamite, as did Jay White from New Japan, both on the same show. The Jay White situation was weird. He showed up, I, I think he like appeared on Rampage and then he was gone and it was just yeah. odd for them to debut him in such a lackluster way. But nevertheless, it was a notable episode with both of those people showing up. The Keith Lee entrance ruled. I love his music that he still uses. Mm-hmm. Um, he he fought uh, the one guy from Private Party, looked awesome. And we were hoping for giant things from Keith Lee. He's the guy we thought could have been a future world champion in WWE. Didn't happen. Good to see him there. Jay White was weird. Like he said, I think it was a backstage segment with it may Adam have been. Cole or something. Like he was by a bus or something outside. And then just it that never really happens. Right. So it ended it ended up kind of weird. But uh it was good to see Keith Lee back because that was one of the one of the releases in 2021 that we 
uh, we're very much against. Yeah, like there's a lot of people that WWE released where we said, oh, you know, that sucks. We wish them the best. And then there's others where we said AEW needs to sign them immediately. And Keith Lee was one of those people where we're like, yep. AEW needs to sign them immediately. So it was great to see Keith Lee pop up there. And, you know, he's been a tag team champion this year. He's doing well, as well as perhaps we would hope. Maybe not. But that's a common thread that we'll talk about a little bit later. Staying in February, uh, one week later, on the 15th, suddenly news broke that Cody Rhodes would not remain with AEW, the company he helped found. Now, of course, Tony Khan owns it completely, but Tony, but uh, Cody Rhodes, along with, of course, the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega, all executive vice presidents of AEW. We found out Cody would not remain with AEW. He and Tony Khan agreed not to renew his contract. I guess there was an extension that Tony theoretically could have just executed and they decided not to do that. And that it was rumored in that moment, mid-February, that he would return to WWE. And Chris, this was just that, it was like a seminal moment in the year where we said, you know what? WWE isn't automatically going to fix all its ills and, and become this great product that we've been searching for, that we've been hoping that it could become with AEW. But this really became the first major chess piece to go AEW to WWE after the entire trend had only been one way in the other direction. John Moxley, Brian Danielson, uh, you know, uh, Keith Lee that we just mentioned at the start of 2022. And certainly more and more as the year uh, went on that we will discuss. But Cody was that first guy and not just someone going from AEW to WWE, but again, an executive vice president leaving that company and choosing to return to WWE without any executive privileges. It was a huge moment in, I don't want to call it the rivalry or the war or anything like that, but in this head-to-head -head that WWE and AEW have, their general competition, where we said, hey, what if the tide is changing a little bit? What if momentum is shifting? And this was really the start of that. Well, yeah, I mean, it wasn't just someone moving from AEW to WWE. It was one of the founders of the company. Like, like he was part of the group that did all out, all in. And like, that's the whole reason AEW exists is because he of took the challenge. From, yeah, is a tweet from Cody Rhodes. So that was that was a major. I remember Cody, I think, had been working for a bit under kind of a handshake agreement, didn't have a contract for a while. Well, he, he they said, didn't sign the extension. So, yeah, he, uh, he said that yeah. in a promo on AEW. So you weren't sure if it was a work or not. And, and even when when he left, I remember a lot of people thought it was a work uh, when 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 it was Absolutely. reported, announced that Cody was was leaving. They all put out their statements and stuff like that. It really, truly was unbelievable at the time. Uh, for the you know for a guy who you know went out on his own and built something for him to leave it was stunning at the time and yeah we all thought hey WWE makes sense but at the time we didn't quite know for sure yeah we have to remember the elite were doing huge business in Ring of Honor in New Japan but when Cody left WWE and became independent he was you know the straw that stirred the drink of this outside WWE revolution he's the one like you said that accepted the challenge and decided to do all in. And I'm not saying that the Young Bucks and, and Kenny Omega didn't play a significant role because they absolutely did, but he was the linchpin of the entire thing, right? He was that name recognition with the, with the family name as well, the royal family name of Rhodes, who was leaving WWE to find greener pastures and make it out on his own and then turn that into AEW. And for him to leave there, 
you know, you know, at this moment, AEW was still going real hot to start 2022. There weren't really any inklings of there being problems or issues or anything like that. And certainly that changed as the year progressed. But when we look back on it now, perhaps this was the first indication that, hey, you know what? Despite everyone there, oh, I love Tony Khan. I love working for AEW. Perhaps things weren't as rosy as they appeared. And maybe Cody saw that and said, you know what? I need to get out of Dodge. Or maybe Vince just offered him a crap ton of money and got to keep his music and everything. And we'll get into his return later. But uh, possibly, but they both kind of said that he did it without knowing for sure that WWE. Yeah, but Cody knows how to work the media. I I, I don't know if I can fully believe everything. I mean, listen, I I, I wouldn't be surprised if he said, hey, guys, if I was available, would you want me? Like, I I wouldn't be surprised if that conversation happened. But you have to remember the way that Tony and um, Cody handled this. They very much said, look, we're not going to talk shit about each other. Yes. This was a mutual parting of ways. So I don't think that they wanted it to continue whether WWE was there or not. I don't think that Vince was dangling some big money offer and that got him to leave AEW. I think the issues were internal. I don't know. We'll see. But when we talk about, you know, big moments like Chris Jericho going from WCW, WWE is one of the first big ones to go that way. Cody Rhodes leaving AEW is, uh, is, uh, is one of those for this era. Yeah, you're right. And also on February 15th, much less important, uh, 205 Live for WWE ceased operations and three days later redebuted as NXT Level Up, which at first, by the way, was very rough. But if I, from what I understand, and I saw a couple clips of NXT Level Up recently, very watchable show right now on Peacock. We won't mention it again for the rest of this program. Figured I would just say that briefly. Uh, before that month was out, we did have WWE Elimination Chamber on February 19th. And this was where Goldberg got an immediate championship match with Roman Reigns. Just came back. He's like, I want a title match. And Roman's like, "Okay, dude, fine, let's fight. Well, I think because I think they also mentioned because Goldberg was going to fight Roman at WrestleMania 20, uh, uh, the the Performance Center one or Royal Rumble or something. When correct. when, When Roman when Roman took his leave of absence at the beginning of the pandemic. That became, was that when it became Goldberg Fiend instead? No, Goldberg beat the Fiend with a simple spear to win the title. I think it was the Blue Universal Championship. Yeah, and Goldberg was going to challenge him. Roman decided not to wrestle because of the pandemic and because of, you know, his, um, I don't want to say he doesn't have leukemia, but, you know, the dormant leukemia or or whatever those circumstances are. I'm not a doctor. I apologize if I butchered that for for the health and safety of himself and Mm -hmm. his family because he was immunocompromised. Uh, So Roman decided not to participate. Braun Strowman fought Goldberg instead. Strowman beat Goldberg. So the Reigns-Goldberg match never happened, and they put it in for elimination chamber in this spot. I believe now that this was here in this spot, memory, I think, serves that it was supposed to be Reigns-Lesnar at day one, again at the Royal Rumble. This was a break, and then Reigns-Lesnar a third time at WrestleMania. I think that's what the plan was. But we were extremely angry. That Goldberg came back and immediately got the match. Reigns beating him handily made it a little bit easier to digest, but it was frustrating. However, on the same show that that happened, we also saw Lita wrestle her first singles match in a decade since 2012. And that was a huge moment in WWE. Yeah, I didn't really have any thoughts on Goldberg. It was what it was. He does his thing, especially for the Saudi shows. Sure, whatever. Lita coming back was awesome, and I was really, really hoping we get her in front of an American crowd and not at just a Saudi show one-off, mm-hmm. and that turned out to be the case. You know, she came back one time, 
I don't, you know, I'm not going to say I blame her for getting a big paycheck for doing Saudi or whatever, but I was really hoping it could turn into something at mania. Um, but it, it never came and we never saw her again. I don't think all year. So that was, it was good to see her and it was a good match. I just, I want, I wish we had gotten more from her. Cause she's, yeah, awesome. I think you and I actually like were discussing on the podcast. Hey, this might be the first of a few appearances leading into WrestleMania. And that got us really excited. But as you just noted, that never came. That was the only like real, you know, singles match appearance or, or, or match appearance on a, on a pay-per-view. And it just didn't continue after that. And we both really thought, oh, it'd be cool if she was at WrestleMania. Did not transpire. So that, that ends February. Uh, let's move into March, where the second day of March, some more big news at the world of professional wrestling. As Tony Khan, the owner of AEW, bought Ring of Honor outright, not as a subsidiary of AEW, even though it basically is, but I assume that's some bookkeeping reasons why it's not, or maybe legality reasons why it's not, but as a separate organization. Uh, WWE did have a bid in to buy Ring of Honor, but it was a lower amount just because WWE wanted the tape library for some of its you know package creation and, of course, Peacock as a whole. But Tony Khan jumped in, bought Ring of Honor, uh, you know, for people who were fans of Ring of Honor, certainly a big deal because they had a big money billionaire backer who perhaps would do more with it than had currently been done to that point. I don't remember whether Ring of Honor was still on a hiatus from the pandemic or if they'd only done a couple of shows or whatever the case might have been. But it was an organization that was certainly um, taken down a few pegs by the pandemic in terms of its ability to run shows and do TV and all that type of stuff. So it was really at a low point and Tony Khan swooped in, bought it, saved it, depending on your, uh, whatever terminology you want to use. Yeah. I think Ring of Honor shut down in the pandemic. They were just doing a couple of pay-per-views, but they'd released everybody from their contract. So I, I, I'm someone, I didn't grow up kind of in the Ring of Honor period. I was out of wrestling when it came up. I was aware of it. I went to a show one time. That's obviously where a lot of the elite came. So at the time it was, it was interesting because we were like, oh, is this going to be a whole other company? And it mm-hmm. sounded like that's what Tony Khan wanted to do. And to this day, it's it hasn't happened. It, they've done a couple of pay-per-views, but there's still no TV deal. And given the cuts going on at Warner Brothers Discovery, that doesn't sound likely at this point. Uh, it's largely taken up a lot of space on AEW. So I think at the time, we had a lot of high hopes for what could be done there. And look, more wrestling companies is good in general it's more work for everybody it's it's more it's more content um but basically ring of honor has largely just been an aw subsidiary at this point and i'm not i'm not sure if it's changing so at the time we all had very very high hopes and expectations and i don't think it's fair to say it's 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 quite uh gotten to where we uh, had hoped well yeah the aew and ring of honor situation you know it's strange uh, tony khan i think announced this month that they will not have a TV deal. They're restarting or or adjusting the Ring of Honor subscription service that exists that is kind of obscenely expensive for what you get for it. They're going to do a show exclusively on that streaming service. So they want you to subscribe to get a weekly Ring of Honor show. And then they're still going to do pay-per-views. I mean, look, the, the pay-per-views, I haven't purchased any of them. I did find uh, other ways to watch them eventually. A number of extremely good matches. Obviously, a lot of AEW talent being used on it helps bring some extremely high quality matches. But 
more than anything, I feel like it's been an albatross for AEW, particularly the television product. The, the amount of Ring of Honor that has appeared on both Dynamite and Rampage, it led to the worst creative periods of both shows. Only right now is, is Rampage recovering just a little bit. You know, it's been a largely it's been a frustration uh, for me as an AEW viewer who, like you, doesn't necessarily care that much about ROH. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 been up and down, but it was definitely huge uh, at the time. Yeah. So the 6th of March saw AEW Revolution take place. We got the debuts of William Regal and Swerve. So when we talked about that list of people that WWE cut in 2021, early 2022, and I mentioned earlier, oh my God, AEW has to sign these people. They'd be stupid not to. Swerve, of course, was one of those from a wrestler standpoint and William Regal, absolute no-brainer hire. And allow me to use this opportunity to promote my exclusive interview with Swerve Strickland, published on this podcast just days after his debut in AEW. He explains why he went over there, his time in WWE and NXT. You can get that in our podcast archives. Many of you called it um, one of our best interviews, if not the best interview that we did all year. It was extended. I think it was over an hour. Loved that conversation with Swerve. Yeah, this it was an interesting show where Paige beat Adam Cole again to to retain the belt. I think that's the show oh, we all that, remember. That endless uh, feud. Oh my god. Yeah, that the, that the match we all remember from this is uh uh CM Punk beating MJF in the dog collar match. The rest of yes. it was champions retaining for the most part. I'm just going back over the card again. Um pretty forgettable show in general, except mm-hmm. for uh, CM Punk at the time and the Swerve debut, which was kind of spoiled by Tony Schiavone's uh, clipboard. If memory serves, that may have been the show in Orlando that I that I skipped that I thought wasn't worth going This to. was in Orlando, yes. There you go. So that, that's what that was. Um, but yeah, the dog collar match, that is among our match of the year uh, nomination. So you will be able to vote for that when we get to the Getting Over Awards. Uh, at the end of the week, the ballot will be out. And of course, we'll do that show next week. Also on March 6th, Control Your Narrative. That promotion debuted with EC3, Braun Strowman, and Karrion Cross trying to create something that was extremely odd and ill-conceived, and that will be the total amount of time we talk about CYN. On March 8th, we had NXT Roadblock, where Dolph Ziggler fought Braun Breaker and won the NXT Championship. That was a, a big surprise, Dolph going back for a stint in NXT, arguably Braun Breaker's best feud of the year, despite the guy being champion all year long. And it was great to see Ziggler reinvigorated with the championship and just get him on TV at the time. He wasn't really doing much of anything. Uh, I believe Robert Roode was still active at that point. He was by his side. That was pre-injury, but it was just interesting to do that with Dolph. And I I thought that was a, um, despite NXT 2.0 struggling out of the gate, that period of time with Ziggler and Breaker at the top of the card, it was strong and it really did help Braun uh, grow. On the 9th of March, Jeff Hardy made his debut for AEW, coming out of an extremely strange release uh, from WWE at the end of 2021, seemingly caused by Jeff straight up walking out in the middle of a match during a WWE live event. And he got brought into AEW will talk a little bit more, Chris, in a moment about how his tenure with that company 
was paused. But seeing Jeff on there, and of course, seeing him with Matt in that moment, that was pretty cool to see them reunited, given they had been in separate companies. Yeah, they'd been separated for quite a while. And uh, yeah, I think we said at the time was, hey, we just hope Jeff Hardy is okay, man. And and maybe being back with Matt will get him back in order. Um, We kind of found out later, maybe not the case. Yeah. And as um, March continued in the middle of the month, two extremely sad pieces of news. The first occurring on SmackDown, where on the 11th, Biggie broke his neck while taking, I believe it was an overhead belly to belly suplex at ringside from Ridge Holland. Obviously, the immediate concern was that Biggie, um, you know, possibly died uh, or would be paralyzed or have significant long-term damage to his neck. Uh, You know, the way things have transpired since is he has seemingly regained full strength in his neck. And he, you know, after a a brief kind of touch and go period in terms of they weren't sure if it would heal properly, all that, it seems like he is on the road to complete recovery for his health. Now, whether he gets back in the ring remains to be seen. But when you consider that he started the year at the apex of his career as WWE champion, and then less than three full months later, he's laid out at ringside on SmackDown, put, getting put on a back brace, brought to the hospital, and you know doing everything that he did to, to have to recover from that neck injury. Um, scary moment for all involved, obviously a beloved superstar. And you know I just continue to wish him, of course, the best in health. And I hope he gets back to living a 100% normal life. But now that it seems like that is almost assured, I also hope that Big E heals enough where he's able to get back in the wrestling ring because he belongs there and the sport is better with him as a part of it. Yep. And I think he he said this at the time too, but if you're going to break your neck uh, somewhere, do it in Birmingham, Alabama. That is uh, the best place was, to do it. <laughs> right yeah. near some of the some of the best doctors in the country. Uh, thankfully, he was okay. He's been doing WWE projects kind of out of the ring, obviously, the last few months. Uh, done some of the recruiting stuff, college visits they've done. So good to see he's largely got a normal life back. And if things turn out uh, right, really hope to see him back in the ring, but just thankful that it, it wasn't worse because it was certainly scary at the time and really uh, was just really a crappy year for, for Biggie and, and all that. But, you know, he, at least he's OK. Yes, exactly. The, the, his, his health is by far the most important. But, you know, selfishly, would love to see him back in the ring again. Want him to become WWE champion with a real reign under a new creative direction. A second time, I very badly would like to see that happen. Uh, three days after Biggie did break his neck on SmackDown, unfortunately, the news, of course, got even worse in the world of professional wrestling. As Scott Hall, uh, formerly known, of course, as Razor Ramon, died at age 63. And this really shook up uh, pro wrestling because, you know, Scott, of course, had his issues. And um, for a while, it didn't seem like he might even get to 60, right? Or perhaps even a younger age than that. But he really seemed to have cleaned things up and turned his life around with a lot of help, of course, from Diamond Dallas Page. Uh, WWE had started featuring him a little bit more frequently, Hall of Fame stuff and and stuff on Peacock. And, and he was kind of getting back into the groove of being that one of the legends that was still around that people could look to. Uh, I know that a number of wrestlers sought his advice and he, he helped them out and things like that. Um, and he got, he fell ill and died, of course, very soon after that. The outpouring of affection uh, from active wrestlers, of course, retired wrestlers, the stuff that WWE t- did to honor him, 
uh, it was all extremely touching, of course. And, you know, I think I've said it numerous times and, and certainly we did a, a full full kind of eulogy on the podcast at the time. But Scott Hall, uh, Razor Ramon, one of my favorite wrestlers of all time, hit me hard. Um, just one of those people that you, you see from your youth and you're like, you know, you saw them when you're growing up as a giant, right? As this great wrestler, um, someone that you watched on TV, you thought, oh, I want to flick my toothpick just like him. I want to be as effortlessly cool as Scott Hall. It is nearly impossible to be as effortlessly cool as Scott Hall. And to see someone like that get sick the way he did and ultimately die, uh, it really did sting. And um, so, yeah, Scott Hall dead age 63 on March 14th. Yeah, tough news. One of the coolest guys, like you said, in, in, in the business guy had a remarkable life and just kind of journey. I'm actually in the process of reading that big WCW Nitro book that's out. I got it uh, mm. for Thanksgiving, and um, he obviously is, is, plays a big role in that. And uh, best working punch maybe in the history of pro wrestling. So it's got yeah. all one of the one of the one of the greats. Absolutely. Uh, now, with WrestleMania season approaching for WWE, Triple H on the 25th of March sat down for an exclusive one-on-one -on -one interview with Stephen A. Smith, where he officially announced his in-ring retirement. Now, I do believe most of us likely saw that coming, given the heart condition that forced Triple H to relinquish his duties. Got, he, when he got rushed to the hospital, he was laid out, he had a pacemaker put in. Uh, at least for a period of time. I don't know whether he still has it or not, but that's obviously personal medical stuff that I wouldn't know. Um, but he announced in that interview, as an emotional interview with Stephen A, uh, that he retired. Stephen A, of course, had his own heart ailment uh, shortly, of course, before this. So he was empathetic to the situation. They had a great conversation. It was one of two extended interviews that Triple H did in 2022. Of course, the other one coming under drastically different circumstances. Uh, but seeing him retire there, obviously a little bit more happened to that degree at WrestleMania, where he literally came out and put his boots down in the ring, got an ovation from the crowd. That was super touching. But to see, you know, his career come to an end, where it kind of always seemed, you know, pre-heart condition, Triple H would find a way to get back in the wrestling ring here, here or there, like a special match with Seth Rollins, or maybe Roman Reigns would have to go through him or something, you know, who knows exactly what they would do, help him build young talent. I can see now, like, Triple H and Austin Theory. That's a match that like theoretically would have made sense if he wasn't retired from the ring. Uh, but for him to retire from the ring, of course, he was really one of the few from his era that was still active and still theoretically you know, able to continue wrestling. And to see him retire um, kind of put a finality to this whole, you know, Triple H is done. And this heart thing was really super serious. All, of course, heart ailments are serious, but for him in particular... Uh, he he really went into detail in that interview about how serious yeah. it was, how close he came to dying, and really what Stephanie and his kids went through having to deal with that entire situation. So, so good interview by Stephen A, certainly, but a notable moment, Triple H retiring from the ring on March 25th. Yeah, one of the, the I think the first time we really got all the details of what happened uh, to Triple mm -hmm. H and to, to hear that you know he almost died. It was just, just remarkable to, uh, to hear um, emotional stuff. Um, it was it was good to see things that kind of gotten back in order. He'd gotten his health in order. Was, you know, again, coming off of the death of Scott Hall, it was like, you know, coming off of Biggie breaking his neck. It was like, this all happened in like a two week span, you know, mm -hmm. Biggie's neck, Scott Hall dies, Triple H announces 14 days, two weeks, reveals, yep. reveals the details. It just kind of put in perspective about what's most important here. And, um, it was, uh, 
yeah, and end of an era, so to speak, for that Triple H. You know, Triple. I, I didn't go to wrestling shows as a kid, even though I watched it. My parents never ran over took me and so when i went to wrestlemania 30 in new orleans and got to watch a triple h entrance in person for the first time oh, to incredible. experience that that yeah. was one of the things i always wanted to do as a wrestling fan so i was happy i got to do it one of the best uh to ever do it as well and uh, obviously turned out to be a pretty big year for triple h and this would is, you say this his um, would you say his entrance you know with the water the full triple h experience the game triple h entrance um is one of the greatest entrances of all time it, it for me personally, it's top five for sure. It's up it, there it's, for me it's too. It's right up there. Like yeah. just the, the water spit, the music, the 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 lights, uh, every everything hit. You know, the the King of Kings music is fine. You know, the the the, the previous song he did, "My Time," was was very good music as well. But the game mm-hmm. that is one of the greatest themes of all time. One it's a great the theme. Entrances. It's a great entrance. Yeah, the whole aesthetic of the entire thing. They just. They really do absolutely crush it uh, when he does that. And then wrapping up March, Chris, uh, Tony Storm made her debut for AEW on Dynamite on March 30th. And I listed this because, look, uh, she was not the first ex-WWE woman to go over to AEW. That, of course, was Ruby Soho, I believe. However, Tony Storm, again, when she left WWE and she left, she was not released. She asked for her release. She walked out, I think, or refused to go to a show. I forget. I think I think she... um went home immediately after a house show and then refused to show up maybe to TV or something like that. So WWE released her on her request. But she was the first former WWE female to go over to AEW where I said, this is impactful. This will actually improve their division. And seeing her show up and then, of course, knowing uh, what she did over the remainder of the year, the fact that she won the AEW Women's Championship um, interim at the time and then eventually made full, you know, it was definitely an impressive first year for her with that company. Yeah, you know, one of the bigger female signings that they've ever had. Um, her time on WWE was very odd when she got called up. She did mm-hmm. some of that pie in the face stuff with Charlotte, but and she left WWE right at the time when she was in she the just challenged picture. Charlotte for yeah the so championship, kind of some- the SmackDown Women's Championship, I think, and was going to remain in that program with her. Yeah, it, Tony Storm was someone we thought AEW should put to the top of the card immediately and get a title on her, and took a while, but but they got her. Mm-hmm. All right, so that moves us into April, and obviously we kick off April with WrestleMania 38 from the second and third. Now, Chris, there is so much here to talk about. Okay, <laughs> so there's no particular order. I'm just going to start naming things that happened at this WrestleMania, and we can briefly talk about each of them. Logan Paul made his debut. Uh, what a shocker how good he was in the ring. And we didn't even know what was still to come from Logan Paul in WWE. Could tell from the beginning, tremendous heel. He got some of the biggest boos of the entire weekend. Logan Paul did. That was a sign of things to come. Uh, Cody Rhodes officially did make his return to WWE. This was his re-debut, of course, as the mystery opponent for Seth Rollins, who had that really odd storyline about wanting to fight on the card and then eventually finding out he would fight, but not knowing who his opponent was a lot of tongue in cheek stuff from WWE. But Chris, the reaction that this crowd gave when Cody's music hit, and it was the same music as you noted that he had an AEW had the AR graphic, of course, of that American nightmare logo, which is just horrendous. I mean, it's a fine logo, but the horrendous on the tattoo, he came out in the Cody Vader, the whole deal, that return, and by the way, that match too, 
they were just spectacular. Yeah, one of the be- one of the be- one of the better returns of all time, I would say. Given everything, again, I I w- this was in Dallas. I went to this WrestleMania. And this was the moment. This is probably the moment more than any other that I remember from WrestleMania and being there. It is the Cody Rhodes return. Everybody going nuts, hearing the music again. Like we people chanting Cody, Cody. They sold Dusty Rhodes stuff on the concourse, so like you you kind you knew it was going to be him, yeah. but you didn't know how it was going to be him, and. For it to, you know, American Nightmare, that logo he created on the WrestleMania board, just like yeah. major props to him, man. He went out on his own, did it, and came back a, you know, a, a conquering hero, basically. And uh, that moment more than any other stood out to me as, as, as the moment of that WrestleMania. And by the way, credit to Seth Rollins for doing a one-man build to a WrestleMania match. Yeah. And then in that moment, you have to remember, Seth is standing in the ring by himself, and he's waiting. And I, I distinctly remember, I think he like removes his jacket. He gets really frustrated. He starts pulling off his jacket. He's like, come on, come on. And then the music hits and his facial expression. The thing was 10 out of 10. Like it was just executed so perfectly for them doing what they wanted to do to bring Cody back. Obviously, we got the promo on the Raw after WrestleMania that followed. That was pretty exciting, all that type of stuff. But man, was that a moment at WrestleMania. That, that indeed, Chris, was a... TM, WrestleMania moment. Uh, Another one was Steve Austin coming out for the KO show against Kevin Owens and that quickly developing into a no-holds-barred match. I believe that was the technical stipulation. Austin's first match since WrestleMania 2003. And beyond the fact that Stone Cold Steve Austin was back in the ring, beyond the fact that he was wrestling Kevin Owens, it was actually pretty good. Like Austin yeah. looked solid to the point where it's like, I really hope Steve Austin wrestles more. You know, again, being there, we didn't, you didn't know what to expect. Like you thought, oh, Austin will come out and stun him and that'll be that. And they're like, no, we're having a match. You're like, okay, well, they'll have a two minute match. And then, uh, but it just kept building and building. Oh, they're doing a full on match. Oh, they're outside the ring. Oh, they're on the stage. Like It just, that the crescendo built and built and built throughout the entire thing because the expectations are pretty low to by the end of it, you're like, damn, Steve Austin just straight up wrestled a match and, at, at WrestleMania and won. And that was such a cool moment for, for Kevin Owens, for everybody. And again, just like I said with Triple H, getting to see a Stone Cold Steve Austin glass break entrance in person, mm-hmm. that's on the bucket list. Like, that was incredibly cool. So this this was, I'll, I'll say it at the end of this mania, but, but it was just another example of just how so many things at this mania just worked and were just a lot of fun. Yeah, that's 100% accurate. We also got Becky Lynch dropping the Raw Women's Championship to Bianca Belair. I don't know why I said it that way. We had Bianca Belair (laughs) finally overcoming Becky Lynch to win the Raw Women's Championship at WrestleMania. And I remember in the moment, Chris, loving this match. Like just being head over heels at the storytelling, the wrestling, top to bottom, you know, I mean, maybe it was the best women's match of the year. I kind of need to go back and think about that. It is up for match of the year in our getting over uh, awards. But the moment of Bianca overcoming Becky, the way that match started with the manhandle slam, the false finishes, they just absolutely knocked it out of the park. And I was reminded of this from that Raw clip show that we got this Monday night, the final Raw of 2022. I didn't really watch the entire show, but when they showed that match, I have two TVs. It was, I had Monday Night Football on the main TV. I had that on the small TV. 
I saw them in the ring and I was like, oh yeah, I freaking love this match. I immediately unmuted the TV and I basically watched the entire thing and was reminded how great it was. And I, you know, people are talking about match of the year and they're talking about plenty of stuff from AEW, plenty of stuff from WWE, New Japan, all that. That, that probably won't win, Becky, Bianca. But from a storytelling aspect, it was just as good as any other match that happened in 2022. It was the best match on the card at WrestleMania. It was one of the greatest women's matches of all time. I think mm-hmm. at the time we may have said it was. Uh, the storytelling, the wrestling, everything hit. That was Bianca's star-making moment. I know she main-evented uh, one night of Mania the previous year, but like... Sasha, yeah. Against Sasha. But but that match showed you like how how much she can do, and the, the Sasha one, match one felt. I'm sorry, I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but the yeah. Sasha match felt more important, like for society, right, and for like progression in WWE. This was better. Yes this 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 match was incredible. Like you said, you you rewatched it on Monday. If if you haven't watched it in a long time, go back and watch it. It's it's so good. I legitimately think I've seen that match now after Raw four or five times this year. That's how much I liked it. Yeah. It was super, super entertaining. All right. A lot more from WrestleMania 38. We had the Johnny Knoxville, Sami Zayn match, which I think both of us going in were like, just don't be embarrassing. <laughs> like, like Johnny's probably going to win. Let's just have Sammy look okay coming out of it. Forget that. The thing was an absolute blast, completely exceeded expectations pure comedy. Sami Zayn was amazing. And this really kicked off really the beginning of the feud back when like uh, they they attack him on the red carpet or they got into it on the red carpet, whatever the case, the whole build to this was entertaining. And then the match was even better than I expected it to be. Kudos to Johnny Knoxville and all the jackass guys. But this started the year of Sami Zayn. This was so sports entertaining. Like it, it this had no reason to be as good as it was, but it was not only because Sami Zayn did amazing stuff because he's really good at what he does, but Johnny Knoxville held his own. This was, I think, was it was it the Rumble that Johnny Knoxville was in the Royal Rumble? He and that's the how Rumble. this started. Yeah. And and it felt like a one-time thing. And I don't know if it was the original plan or not, but Johnny Knoxville was really good at 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 just doing the pro wrestling sports entertainment type stuff that they brought him back a few more times. You get this WrestleMania match and it's one of the most memorable things of the show to have all the jackass guys back in there was, was fun. We man, we man doing the suplex of Sammy. We man was was awesome. What was a moment. The, the, the jackass forever movie was hilarious. If you haven't seen it, it was Um, true. This was, uh, this was just so much fun, man. This was again a really, really fun moment at something you on paper you you don't think it works, but this is when sports entertainment works. Well, they went full camp with it. They just said, okay, yes. let's do a bunch of jackass gimmicks, and they called back for us older fans who watched the original Jackass when it was on MTV. There was some of that in there. It just hit every single thing it needed to, and it doesn't work without Sami Zayn being willing to sell and bump for all of these non-wrestlers. So, you know, as great as Johnny and the Jackass guys were, Wee Man, et cetera, Sami Zayn is the one who made this match work. And he was absolutely fantastic. Uh, Pat McAfee also had his first main roster match in WWE. Obviously, we had seen him previously in NXT. He had that um, against Austin Theory. He got the win there. Then Vince McMahon, that whole... the, the, The segment ultimately for me didn't work that well, but Vince McMahon ends up 
wrestling Pat McAfee and beating him uh, for his final match ever and his first match since 2010. I, you know, I wish certainly um, that whole thing could have been executed a little bit better. Vince, of course, was really rough trying to set up the entire thing. Don't forget, it all started, Chris. Going back to 2021 with the egg and Austin Theory in the promotion for Red Notice, okay, at Survivor Series. So the whole Vince McMahon, Austin Theory uh, feud, or not feud, I'm sorry, relationship started then. It, of course, progressed uh, into 2022. And it kind of, it didn't culminate here because it did continue after this, but it certainly had one of its most notable moments uh, involving Pat McAfee. I would say this actually fell below my expectations at WrestleMania. Yeah, McAfee theory was pretty good. You know, you just continue to be amazed at how good Pat McAfee is as a high flyer, kind of just mm -hmm. the moonsaults. He can just, he can hit moves. Like he's a pretty good pro wrestler. He's on NXT. We got to see it at WrestleMania. He wrestled again at SummerSlam. This is probably going to become an annual thing and maybe we'll get sick of it. But at, at, at this point, he's very entertaining. The Vince stuff was complete nonsense. It was, it, it dragged on for a while. This mm -hmm. was actually at a moment I was going from like the, the sweet area down to close to ringside for the, for the main event. And so it, it was, I didn't understand what was going on at the time, but then you get Stone Cold Steve Austin comes out. He stuns Vince horribly. Austin is uh, laughing second about worst, it. I, I was going to say second worst stunner ever, but I think it was actually the worst. The it, worst. That one, that stunner. one, that one, yeah, that one or the Trump one of the worst stunners ever, I think. Yeah. And it was, it was, but it was like Austin laughing it off made it all work because yes. you could just be like, all right, like we get this is this didn't exactly work out, but we're just having fun here. And so that was it ended up being a, it would end up being a fun moment, even if it was terrible. Yeah. And lastly, of course, the world championships in WWE, the WWE championship and the universal championship were, you know, I, I say unified, but technically they're still separate titles. Now they are, of course, the undisputed WWE universal uh, championship in that Roman Reigns Brock Lesnar match. Lesnar coming in as WWE champion. Reigns, of course, coming in as Universal champion. And let's not forget, it was a hot potato situation with Lesnar and Bobby Lashley. The whole thing was just extremely convoluted. And when this ended, uh, it wasn't a great match. It was fine, I guess is the best way to put it. But you and I, I think, said the same thing. Hopefully, this is at least over. And that was like the, the little check mark that we could put on and say, hey, you know what? It wasn't incredible. And there are far better matches on this WrestleMania card, but at least it seems like this is over. Yeah, it was it was definitely a letdown, you know, for, for a show that was incredibly fun both nights. They weren't too long. They've really nailed down the pacing of the, the two night events. Um, it was kind of a fizzle bit of an ending. Mm -hmm. They just spam finisher the whole time in Roman one. And that was it. And ultimately, like maybe there was nothing more you could do with Roman Brock outside of what ended up happening later on at SummerSlam. But, uh, you know, overall, WrestleMania 38, extremely fun, up for our show of the year. Um, and it, it was to the point where the fact that Roman won again and the main event wasn't great, nobody really cared. Like, walking out of the, the show that night, everybody was in a good mood. Like, they had a good time. And it, it's so much compared to so many other manias where it's kind of an up and down show. Roman wins at the end and everybody's just like, ugh. Like, th this show worked even despite having a meh main event. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that that's a credit to the way everything was laid out and developed. Yeah, it's a really fair way to put it. So we finally got past WrestleMania 38. And the next night, of course, the Raw after WrestleMania, not overly eventful, but two things did happen. Ezekiel made his debut and we had no idea what that was going to turn into. 
and then Judgment Day formed. And similarly, we had absolutely no idea what that was going to turn into. Ezekiel, I would say, played out as WWE probably planned for it to play out, and I'm glad that it ended when it did. Judgment Day, of course, took not just one, not just two, but three different turns as this year has gone on. I don't mean heel babyface. I just mean different members and formations and things like that. And now it's in certainly a far better place than it was here. But it was interesting that both of these kind of took place on that Raw after WrestleMania. I thought the Ezekiel thing was so funny on the first night. I watched it. I didn't go to Raw. I watched it at home with that with my brother. And we that was like the that was the most notable thing from the show. Like you put down in the notes, like that was really funny. Ultimately, it became played out, but mm-hmm. it was it was certainly a change. And I, I appreciated the effort in the beginning. So on April 6th, Nash Carter, one half of MSK, was released by WWE while he was still NXT tag team champion. And this happened after he and I, I, I'm forgetting, I'm sorry if it's girlfriend, wife, ex-girlfriend, whatever the case, got into it. Um, her, you know, trying to quote unquote expose him on social media. And among the things that were shared was a picture of him like having shaved a Hitler mustache into his face. And I think doing the Nazi salute in a photo that clearly was meant as like a joke, even though, of course, you shouldn't joke about the Nazis and Hitler and the Holocaust. Um, But obviously, WWE being a publicly traded company and a PG company and having sponsors and all that, they certainly couldn't stand by that. So they released Nash Carter and they had Wesley, of course, uh, relinquish the NXT Tag Team Championships because this all happened while they were champions on NXT. And then on the same day uh, on AEW Dynamite, Samoa Joe made his debut for AEW, another one of the people where we looked at it from... uh, WWE, and we said, we cannot believe that this person got released in AEW. If they have their druthers, should pick them up immediately. Well, they did. So those are two big moments that happened, of course, on April 6th. Yeah, it was good to see Samoa Joe land somewhere that made sense. Um, he's obviously toward the end of his career, and his his year with AEW has been kind of up and down. But he's still Samoa Joe. He still carries an aura about him, and I think he's still been definitely a net positive for aw over there and you know I, we liked him on commentary what was it was wrestlemania com- two remember wrestlemania ago. two years ago he did that in in the 36. rain or whatever like that poncho yeah joe. He, yeah yeah he poncho joe like <laughs> he was a versatile guy who could do a lot liked him on commentary we've we've got the the drops of him on the show but uh it's good to see him back wrestling again in aw i know he wants to wrestle i'm glad he's wrestling in aw when he is done wrestling if he came back to wwe as a color commentator he would be tremendous. And he was tremendous in the role that he played in WWE for a very short period of time. Uh, From April 8th to 11th, we got a bunch more uh, debuts on the main roster. We got Gunther, Ludwig Kaiser, the former Marcel Bartel, uh, Raquel Rodriguez, the former Raquel Gonzalez, and Tommaso Ciampa. All of them got called up. And Chris, what's interesting about this is now Ciampa's injured and he's working his way back. But upon Ciampa's departure for injury, and currently with all these other people in WWE, it's not frequent that NXT call-ups actually come up and succeed. All of them have been succeeding. Yes, and part of that happened under Vince, part of that happened under Triple H, what have you, but you know, we expect call-ups post-WrestleMania. Sometimes they work, sometimes uh, they don't. They didn't happen, the, they didn't happen the Raw after Mania, but these have worked. They've kind of had some ups and downs, but they've worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, on April 25th, 
Mustafa Ali surprisingly returned to WWE three months after requesting his release. And, you know, not much else happened there, but it certainly was notable that he requested it publicly and ended up coming back. On April 29th, Dakota Kai, Malcolm Bivens, and Dexter Loomis were among a dozen NXT talents released. And the Dakota Kai release in particular was just such a mind-boggling move when she is or was ready-made for the main roster, as has now, of course, been proven. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Malcolm Bivens decided not to go to the main roster when given an opportunity, so they certainly released him because of that. He, of course, has caught on uh, with AEW, and Dexter Loomis was released, which certainly was a surprise given how much he was utilized, but really wasn't a surprise given the direction that NXT was going. But Dakota really was the highlight there for me where I just, it was another mind-boggling release where it's like, you're trying to build the women's division, how can you let someone like her go? Yeah, I, I wasn't stunned at any of these. Really, I don't follow NXT as, as much, but um, all of them have have made moves in, in other directions or come back since. Right, exactly. Uh, moving into May on the 10th, Kota Ibushi began a month-long campaign that really hasn't completely subsided even now. He made numerous allegations and threatened to expose New Japan, both the company and executives within it. He has not wrestled all year. He's also been injured. I think it's a shoulder injury that he's been rehabbing. And he's just continually dissatisfied with his situation. And this is one year after Abushi became the man who unified both top IWGP titles, the, the heavyweight championship, of course, and the intercontinental championship, creating their new unified title that sits atop the promotion. So Kota Abushi, no wrestling in 2022. One of the best wrestlers in the entire world. And May was really when things heated up regarding his status with New Japan. Even now, we don't know if he's going to return and if he does, where he might return when he does. On May 16th, just six days later, you want to talk about frustrations with a company. Sasha Banks and Naomi, the active WWE Women's Tag Team Champions, walked out shortly before Monday Night Raw began because they did not want to be involved in singles programs for the main women's championships on both Raw and SmackDown as a tight over before they went back to tag team booking. Well, they walked out. Uh, Michael Cole told viewers, Sasha and Naomi let you down by leaving when they were scheduled on the show. Uh, I believe one or both of them was in like a fatal five-way main event or something like that to determine a number one contender. Something like that happened. Um, ultimately, they got suspended by WWE. There were reports over the summer that Sasha and WWE were negotiating uh, her release in, to some degree. Those talks died down uh, after Triple H took over Creative, which obviously we'll talk about later. There were talks that Sasha Banks might be coming back to WWE. Now those have subsided. There's talks that Sasha Banks is going to appear at Wrestle Kingdom for New Japan to kick off 2023, it seems like that is happening. And now there's rumors, um, or not rumors, I mean, rumors that we're creating and starting by talking about it. There's a mystery opponent set for AEW in a tag team match on January 4th. And many believe, myself included, that Sasha Banks may well be that mystery opponent. So, or mystery partner, mystery opponent, what have you. So it all started May 16th, Chris, with Sasha and Naomi walking out of WWE moments before Monday Night Raw went on the air. It's why that was in May and we've still gotten nothing really resolved from that. We mm -hmm. we haven't had Sasha 
you know, shoot on somebody and explain what happened. We haven't heard from Naomi. Like they've done a bunch of things together. Sasha's got a bunch of businesses going on or, or, or something, but it's just been silence since then. We just really have never gotten the resolve of what happened and why from their side. And who knows if we will just, it was incredibly bizarre at the time. And I think over, over time it hasn't gotten any less surprising or strange because mm-hmm. we haven't had the resolution. Maybe that'll come in early 2023 if Sasha Banks shows up somewhere, but it's been surprising. We, we thought, I think we said at the time, like we thought this would be resolved in like three months. Mm-hmm. They, they either they'd be fired either they they'd come back something and it never happened it was surprising and it was you know always legitimate for them to be angry that the women's tag team championships weren't being booked or treated well that was totally legit but man was i like they walked out over being put in main event programs on both shows like they were going to lose obviously they were holdovers like the tied wwe over until the SummerSlam build but they walked out just because they weren't going to be defending their titles in a company that didn't have women's tag teams at the time. And again, we don't know. Maybe there was something specific that happened. There are rumors that someone talked down to them backstage or that they said they'd work on the storyline and make it better, but they didn't. But again, the booking was for them to become number, both of them, the active champions to become number one contenders for the main titles. Let's not forget Sasha Banks and Bayley during the pandemic were women's tag team champions. And they held the main titles, right? Didn't they both hold a championship while simultaneously being women's tag team championship? And they were okay with that then, but they weren't okay with being part of it here. I never understood them walking out. It seemed like an extremely rash decision. And yeah, we're still kind of waiting on a resolution for it. Yeah, that's the thing. We, we never really got their side publicly and we still haven't. Right. Now, two weeks later, AEW held double or nothing on uh, May 29th. And this was completely overshadowed, this pay-per-view, by MJF uh, protesting his contract, no showing a meet and greet, and then eventually appearing at the pay-per-view where he had a scheduled major blow-off rivalry match with Wardlow. Now, Wardlow beat him rather unceremoniously, and MJF apparently walked out, left, and that was it. A few days later, he appears on AEW Dynamite, cuts a clearly worked shoot promo, curses out Tony Khan, calls him a fucking mark, I think was the term he used, and he completely disappears from AEW television. This began all the way back in March, and and MJF had been dissatisfied about his contract for a while, but he did an interview with Ariel Helwani that was unapproved by Tony Khan. Tony got angry, MJF was angry that Tony was angry, plus he was still pissed off about his contract. Reportedly, Tony refused to give him any type of raise without him signing an extension. MJF didn't want to sign an extension, blah, blah, blah. But this all blew up the weekend of the 29th of Double or Nothing, and it completely overshadowed that show. Yeah, that was that was such a weird thing at the time. You were trying to figure out what's a work, what's not. Ultimately, it hurt Wardlow in what was supposed to be the crowning moment of his career to this point. Mm -hmm. And whether or not MJF did that on purpose or not, that's what happened. And that's a that's I don't think he did it to hurt Wardlow. I mean, I don't know. I'm not saying whether he meant right. I'm just saying that's what ended up happening. And it's just. Yes, I I, I, I did. I didn't. I didn't like that. Obviously, the work shoot probe the next day, he disappears. There have been reports that he wanted the new contract, didn't want extra years, whatever. He still talks about as part of the character. Look, now we're we're at MJF world champion so like mm-hmm. 
things worked out for him. Wardlow still kind of just hanging around. And I, I, I think it, it became a theme for AW this year that something else happening kind of outside what's happening in the ring ends up overshadowing mm-hmm. what AEW is producing in the ring. And that's that turned out to continue to be a problem for the company in 2022. Yeah, we talked about certainly earlier in the year, uh, Cody Rhodes leaving AEW. Hey, perhaps that was an indication that something wasn't going right. This was really the where that blew up, where people started suddenly talking about AEW and Tony Khan and things that weren't going well and, and them being dissatisfied with their creative, their contracts, things he wouldn't let them do, all that type of stuff. It finally kind of came to, um, people weren't scared to bring it public, even if it was anonymously, uh, in May of 2022. And this was really that moment, Chris, because what it overshadowed on that show, Double or Nothing, was CM Punk winning the AEW World Championship. And just a few days later, as June began, on June 3rd, CM Punk was ruled out indefinitely with a foot injury. Obviously, days after winning the title, he was forced to relinquish the AEW championship and AEW was forced to crown an interim champion. And this was one of numerous interim championship situations, title relinquishing situations that AEW had to deal with for a multi-month period. Uh, Punk winning at the moment, injuring his foot. Uh, There's a little bit of, I think, argument over when it actually happened. Some say it was slightly hurt in the match. Then he jumped off the stage on dynamite into the crowd and hurt it even further. Then, you know, who the hell knows exactly what happened, but for them to finally crown CM Punk, which you knew was coming because he's Tony Khan's favorite wrestler. And he was their big signature signing his biggest, their biggest signature signing since of course, uh, John Moxley, and perhaps even bigger just because he hadn't wrestled in so long, WWE fans were chanting his name, all that type of stuff, for him to finally reach that mountaintop and be the guy they were going to ride all summer long to only break his foot and have to relinquish the title. That really hurt AEW in the moment, particularly because, Chris, their creative that followed it was horrendous. Yeah, it, it was a mix of, you know, perhaps bad leadership and management from AEW on certain things, but also just bad luck on certain things. And CM oh, Punk yeah, injuring, injuring his sure. foot, bad luck. And, and you just kind of have to deal with it. And that, that it was too bad because CM Punk's return the previous year was a, a big moment. He seemed to be, everything seemed to be going well. Little did we know behind the scenes there was some other stuff that was going on. But yeah, it overshadowed CM Punk winning and then CM Punk has to relinquish anyway. Just a tough situation for AEW. Now, two days after that, on June 5th, WWE held Hell in a Cell. And there was a scheduled match, I believe the third in the series between Cody Rhodes and Seth Rollins. Except we learn shortly before that match that Cody has a torn pectoral. And we're starting to wonder, is he actually going to wrestle on this show? With most people thinking WWE was going to do what it did with Sasha Banks the year prior at SummerSlam, where they just don't change the match and they keep announcing as if the match is going to happen on the card, but then it doesn't and there's a substitution. Except Cody Rhodes wrestled with a completely torn pectoral. And Chris, one of the moments of the year, and it may well be the moment of the year. There's a lot of competition for it. And we're going to talk about another major highlight moment in WWE a little bit later that is part of that. But when Cody Rhodes gets in that ring and stands off with Seth Rollins and the music quiets and the commentary team quiets down, 
and he pulls off that first lapel of his jacket. Oof. And you see that pectoral that is so black and blue bruised that a lot of people immediately jumped on Twitter and on the IWC because these people are morons. Oh my God, WWE put makeup on his pectoral. <laughs> this isn't real. It was real. And the fact that they not only wrestled that match, but Seth Rollins poked this torn pectoral with a kendo stick. He punched it, I think, with a steel chain. They did crazy shit. The fact that Cody was able to do many of the moves that he did and the fact that they basically put on a five-star match while Cody Rhodes had a torn pectoral is one of the most amazing things I have ever seen in a professional wrestling ring. You know, when they announced it, that he tore his pec, I thought it was a work. I thought it was just, oh, they're going to, you know. Either, it's, it's an excuse so Rollins Cody, can win. Cody lose or yeah. it's or it's to hype him up when he gets the win or whatever. But then when he pulls it off, you're like, oh, shit, this is real. Like, like yeah. holy crap, I can't <laughs> believe he's actually doing this. And it was one of the images, not only like moments, just that image. Mm-hmm. It's still in my head of, of that look on his face when he's holding his arm there. Just, just remarkable. That was a five-star match from Meltzer. Uh, for for that and who cares? And we haven't seen Cody. In- I geared it. I graded it five stars. About yeah, but I, yeah, for sure for five stars. <laughs> I'm just, it was it was the first WWE know, five just, stars I'm just, since I'm just messing around since I think Punk Cena 2011. So, um, just remarkable stuff from Cody. Tough as nails. We haven't seen him in a, in, in a ring since, and that sucked. Mm-hmm. So like it was a cool moment, but man, to have Cody Rhodes back to have all that momentum and then to lose him, like the the, the fighting with the Peck was one thing, but also. He's gone for the year. Like that two, changes. Two months, changes, Chris. He was in yeah. WWE for two months. It changes everything you had planned for the rest of the year, which just like a bad luck for CM Punk injury, bad luck for WWE Cody Rhodes injury at the same time. Yeah, you're right. It was two days out, you know, right the same week. It happened to both. And Cody, of course, wasn't champion at the time, but clearly he was headed down that path at some point, perhaps during the year or going into 2023. Uh, Now, two days after that, Apollo Crews made his return to NXT. Not a lot to talk about there, but he was a main roster superstar who is now fully part of that NXT brand, uh, unlike Dolph Ziggler, who just took a short trip, you know, down there. And Mandy Rose, of course, was already in NXT at the time. Five days after that, on June 12th, Jeff Hardy was arrested for DUI, immediately, of course, pulled from AEW television, and he did not return to AEW through the end of the year. And really the only thing to mention here, and certainly we hope Jeff is doing better and I hope he c- completed any rehab program that he went into. Um, the thing to mention here is this just gave a lot of credence to, you know, people who said WWE was wrong for releasing him, you know, whether it was related or not, or whether what happened with WWE was an indication that something was wrong with Jeff. We don't know because we don't have that data. We don't have that information, but Clearly, him going to AEW, he was hobbled in all of his matches. Um, He took a lot of bumps that just someone his age, with his history, it was like, why is he taking a bump into an upturned steel step? I forgot if it was with Darby or he had that crazy match with Darby where they both like tried to break each other's necks. Mm -hmm. It was wild. Um, I hope he's doing well. I'm okay if I never watch Jeff Hardy wrestle again. Yeah, you know, we haven't seen or heard much from him since then and as always you just hope everything's okay and that his life is okay he's wrestled so much he's put his body through so much like just hope hope just he has his life back together we've said this a million times about jeff hardy and there's not much else 
to really say about it. Mm -hmm. And if he doesn't come back to wrestling again, hopefully that's for a good reason. For sure. Now, Chris, we are basically midway through the year. And we've had Sasha Banks and Naomi walk out of WWE. Fed Roman Reigns catch COVID-19 or get test positive for it the day of a major pay-per-view. We have a horrible Royal Rumble. Um, Tony Khan buying Ring of Honor. Scott Hall, you know, unfortunately dying. Biggie breaking his neck. Triple H retiring. Stone Cold Steve Austin returning to the ring. Vince McMahon returning to the ring. All of this has happened. And then we get to June 17th, where Vince McMahon is forced to step down from his position as chairman of WWE, and a month later, officially retires, just days after an explosive investigation is published by the Wall Street Journal into hush money payments that Vince allegedly made to former employees and women, some of whom he may have allegedly sexually assaulted or abused or whatever the case might have been. And John Laurinaitis was also quietly released during this time for playing some role in in doing these cover-ups and perhaps being involved in some of these circumstances as well. Now, you know, there were numerous different levels to this. We could talk about the reports, you know, initially coming out, Vince stepping down, Vince retiring. We could talk about them all separately. But really, June 17th was when he stepped down from WWE. And it seemed like, wow, major change is about to come, not just to WWE, but the entire landscape of professional wrestling. There are really two seminal moments right now in wrestling, right? Vince McMahon buying the WWWF from his father and leading, you know, everything that led to, of course, um, you know, killing the territories and taking WWE national WrestleMania and pay-per-view and cable TV and then now broadcast TV and all this. And now Vince McMahon, after all of those decades, stepping down from WWE, being forced out And this is something that, of course, Chris, you and I and wrestling pundits everywhere have talked about. When will Vince McMahon leave WWE? Will he ever leave WWE or will he work until the day he dies in that chair in gorilla position? And this is what has come out or this is what did come out, of course, with Wall Street Journal. They didn't break um, the story of it happening. WWE was already investigating it. I may may have termed that incorrectly uh, previously. WWE was investigating this from... Uh, letters that were sent to them, and and the board was doing a whole investigation and looking into it. But that, of course, got leaked to the Wall Street Journal, which reported it and made it public. Anyway, Vince McMahon stepping down from WWE, like I said, a seminal moment in professional wrestling and one of the singular most important milestones, for lack of a better term, in professional wrestling history. The Wall Street Journal didn't obviously break the news that this was happening but if it well, no, they it did break the news that it was i'm happening. sorry that that it happened but if it if this hadn't gone public if this hadn't leaked we don't know what would have happened we know if, we know wwe's board was investigating it already and and you know they've done a lot of different things on it but we don't know for sure that if this wasn't public this doesn't happen and that that's why it mattered that the wall street journal did report on it the way they did and report further allegations and, and, and payments and everything well, Look, chris I, hold on hold on let me let me contest you yeah it never would have stayed private. I mean, it's a publicly traded company. It's an entire board. You know, there's a dozen people on the board. That was getting out. Well, yeah, but these weren't these weren't incidents that just happened. No, they like, weren't. They were old. So yeah. it's 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 you know we we won't know. I just it mattered. I'm just saying it mattered 
that it became public in the way that it did. And look, I just I, I watched that. that. Yes. I, I watched the Vice Nine Lives of Vince McMahon kind of documentary a week or so ago. And it's more just kind of a mishmash of different dark sides of the ring. But yeah, like for a for a long time and for a lot of people, Vince McMahon is pro wrestling. It's 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 the only thing they've known. The problem he changed yeah. the complete he 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 changed the landscape of the business completely. And there was what there was what like a Netflix documentary about him or movie being made that got scrapped a series like, I think it was maybe yeah like there's a lot like Limited I realized series. watching that like we don't know a lot about Vince's life really and and these things were purposely going to tell us some of them and, and now we're done he's he's gone away and and not also it's worth noting he's stepping down but he comes out on SmackDown that night. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to to make to make a nothing announcement essentially, and I think he showed up again on Raw. The well, next he's, he said day, like then now and the forever, next, and, and fans yeah, cheered him yeah. despite him being under investigation for serious shit, really despicable was, stuff. I mean, it was really messy, really messy, yeah. not handled the best way. Like Mr. McMahon's going to make a statement while this news is coming out about these hush money payments. It was just wild at the yeah. time, but ultimately, yeah, one of the one of the biggest, you know, Vince buying the WWF is one of the biggest just turning points in wrestling mm-hmm. history. And we, we may look back and say, this was yet another one of them. Like we said, we thought everybody thought Vince was going to die in the chair. It, nobody thought he was ever going to let it go. There'd been criticisms of the product for years and years that he didn't seem to be interested in changing. And then just over the course of a few weeks, a month, poof, it was, it was, it was done just like that. And, and don't forget, you know, we are going to have a new story of the year award for our getting over awards. Uh, AKA the meaties. I just got to see if I'm going to catch off guard or not, but we will have that. But Chris, I mean, if anyone votes for something other than this, I mean, this is one of the biggest news stories in professional wrestling history. I I know that crazy stuff happened in AEW. We'll talk about that a little bit later, certainly. And people walked out of TV and Triple H retired and Cody left AEW as an executive vice president for WWE. This just transcends all of those combined. It's the guy. Vince McMahon is the guy. It's Logan Roy. Stepping down from Waystar, like it's it's the equivalent of that, right? Um, there's no other news story that could be as big, except I mean, maybe WWE being sold in 2023 or 2024. If that was to happen, that would certainly mm-hmm. be extremely notable. But Vince McMahon, this guy who changed professional wrestling forever, leaving his post and doing so against his own free will. There's nothing bigger than that. Nope. Nope, not at all. All right. So uh, nine days later, AEW held the AEW X NJPW Forbidden Door pay-per-view, a very unique dual branded show and something that people who had been watching AEW since day one, knowing that much of their talent, especially initially, were people who were featured heavily in New Japan. This was the type of event that we had been waiting for for an extremely long time. Now, Kazuchika Okada, made his debut in AEW four days earlier on Dynamite. And on the show, John Moxley became the interim AEW champion by beating Hiroshi Tanahashi, someone who wasn't even part of the company. But it was a good match. Not a great match, but a good match. Uh, we also got Will Ospreay against Orange Cassidy. Some people have that as their match of the year. It was certainly extremely exciting. Uh, the show didn't necessarily go off perfectly. Many of the matches we would have loved to have seen weren't booked. Uh, Kenny Omega, of course, was injured, so he wasn't even able to participate. And Omega is really has been one of those guys that bridged the gap between 
um, I was going to say United States, he's Canadian, but North American, um, you know, wrestling fans and, and, and the Japanese product. He and the Young Bucks have played a huge role in that. Chris Jericho as well. So we didn't get to see everything that we wanted to see on this show, but it was definitely a notable moment. And it was indeed one of the best pay-per-views of the year. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, as someone who doesn't follow NGBW closely, but is aware of the wrestlers in there, these were some fun matchups. It wasn't all the dream matchups we would have liked. It was kind of like the w, WCW invasion in that sense, where we got some unique and fun matchups, maybe not all of them, but we got Okada, you know, in, in that match at the end. We, we, we didn't did. know what to expect at the time. Osprey versus Orange Cassidy was an incredible uh, match. This was a lot of fun. We don't know if they're going to do it more moving forward, what future things could be. But this was a, this was a way for AEW to show that it's not WWE to do different things. And this was one of maybe the highlight of the year for AEW to show that it can be its own. It can do its own thing and not just follow whatever WWE's doing. Yeah, it's fair to say that even though it wasn't you know perfect by any means or exactly what everyone involved and I, I, Tony Khan included, I'm sure he you know had plans for quote unquote, better or maybe bigger matches on that show. It was probably the one pay-per-view that went off for AEW that was the least flawed. There weren't really complaints coming out of it. It was just, wow, it was a really good show. I wish there was a little bit more impact from a storyline perspective. It was a really short build, let's not forget. Most of this, most of the matches, even if they did have a storyline, it was a relatively minor one and it was something just thrown together on TV. It drastically impacted the AEW television product. Uh, by the way they kind of built this as well. But in terms of the show itself, super entertaining, very worthwhile in terms of uh, spending the money for it, and certainly hope that they do it again. Wrapping up June on the 30th, Logan Paul officially signed a multi-fight deal and a multi-year deal, I believe, with WWE. That, of course, was coming out of his WrestleMania performance. We'll go ahead, move into July. On July 2nd, we had Money in the Bank, and I actually forgot to put this note down, but WWE had planned to do multiple stadium shows consecutively. I think it was four in a row, right? From July through October, if memory serves. Uh, yeah, two money of them. In the, money, in the, money in the Bank, SummerSlam, Clash at the Castle, and, and uh, Saudi Arabia. Not necessarily in that order, but those are the four. No, those, those were the four and that was the order. No, you, you absolutely nailed it. Okay. And um, there were going to be two stadium shows in one month as initially planned. But Money in the Bank was put the same, not just the same weekend, not just in the same city, but the same day and time as a major UFC event, which never made a shred of sense. That was a Nick Khan decision. And WWE ends up moving it because of what they said was lack of ticket sales. They moved it to an arena in Las Vegas that ultimately did sell out. So you can make an argument whether that was or was not the right decision. But in the two big matches on the card, uh, the Money in the Bank matches, Austin Theory won the men's match despite not being in the match. That happened the same night he lost the United States Championship. A lot of people were frustrated by that. And Liv Morgan won the women's match, but not only that, cashed in the briefcase immediately to beat Ronda Rousey and become the SmackDown women's champion. And, you know, I think there was a frustration, right? For me, I said it at the time, all the stuff, I'm not going to repeat it, but all the stuff I love about money in the bank, having it for a long time, the way it builds a person, all that, I hate when it's cashed in immediately. That said, uh, Liv Morgan up to this point had been built up extremely well by WWE. As champion, she did a pretty damn good job. And since dropping the title, she continues to be built very well. Liv Morgan 
is one of the breakout wrestlers of the year for 2022. This was a big reason why, and this was definitely fan service. Fans wanted her to win. Uh, you and I, I think, both wanted her to win. We said it would really be a major mistake by WWE if they didn't give her this opportunity. They did. It paid off for them, and it paid off for her. And I'm just very happy that Liv Morgan, her potential has finally been realized in WWE. And this was the moment where that really started. Yep. That, that, Liv winning the title is the ultimate final moment of the show that we remember. Um, if not for all the previous day of or day after cash-ins by women, it would it would have felt even more impactful. Mm-hmm. But it was good. Austin Theory winning. A lot of people didn't like it. I understood it. I liked it at the time for the potential that ended up not exactly happening because he ends up later on, you know, cashing in for a mid card title and losing, but they reworked. it. I think looking back, this is probably not what you wanted based on how it ended. No, it wasn't. And it was really circumstantial. It was him not being in the match, right? Like just a couple right. of years earlier, Brock Lesnar wasn't in the match. And then Brock Lesnar came in at the end and won. And it was just really frustrating to have, you know, the two Royal Rumbles and the two money in the banks. And if you looked at like, who won those matches that people really wanted to win? Liv Morgan was the only one out of all those four matches. So that was really the frustration uh, with Money in the Bank. Uh, two weeks later, there was a report that came out. And I know this isn't technically news, but there was a report that came out that WWE is going to move to TV 14. It ended up not happening, perhaps because of changing personnel structure. But Chris, there was a very short window of time, like a 48 hour window where everyone was really excited that WWE was going to move to TV 14, especially because it came after Vince, this report came out after Vince McMahon stepped down. And we were all curious, you know, we knew like Triple H was working with creative and doing some of that stuff, but what would things look like if WWE did make that transition? Yeah, you know, people blame a lot of things on PG era and understandably, but I think, you know, time over the past, you know, six months has shown that you can do PG TV and do it well. You know, it, it, that wasn't I, I think we've learned that TV 14 is, is has not been the issue with what we didn't like about WWE. Correct. And the, but we, we and always knew that. But we thought, it yeah, could well, I mean, we thought that. But a lot of people thought, oh, it's PG. It was an easy thing to blame. Yes. The was. failures of creative. On. Scapegoat. We thought it was going to happen. Ended up not happening. You know, six months later, ultimately, I don't think it matters anymore. Yeah, that's true. Now, from July 22nd through the 25th, I mentioned earlier, Vince McMahon previously stepped down from WWE. He officially retired during this period. Triple H took over as the head of talent and creative. But when this happened, I believe it was on a Friday, and Brock Lesnar was scheduled to be at SmackDown. Lesnar walks out of SmackDown, sending people into a frenzy. Oh, WWE's collapsing, whatever. Meanwhile, Triple H called him. He returned. He did the show. Everything transpired basically the way it was going to. I think initially he was going to open the show and said he closed it. That was the only difference. Uh, so Lesnar stayed. And really, the what this is important about is Triple H firmly taking over the talent and creative aspect of WWE that Vince McMahon controlled for decades. Uh, on my old podcast, we talked time and again about what would it look like when Triple H gets the book? Well, he didn't just get the book. He also got the I was going to say paybook, the paycheck as well, the um, the accounting book. With the What am I looking for? Help me payroll. out. Here. The payroll. payroll. He got the payroll as well uh, and the ability to determine who is and is not part of his talent roster. And Chris, through, you know, creative, you know, we theoretically could talk about it all show, but we saw changes come immediately. Among them were more cohesive and compelling storytelling. 
a huge limitation on rematches, wrestlers getting their full names back, longer matches and more actual wrestling on a wrestling television show, an immediate enhanced focus on the mid-card titles. I mentioned Gunther about to be uh, not a record-setting champion, but the longest champion perhaps for the IC title in a decade. Um, The US title was not just, it was already the top championship on Raw, but it was elevated even further and made to feel even more important than it was. Obviously, since we've had like a dozen returns from talent that was released by WWE, largely filling the mid-card and tag team division. But with Triple H taking over talent and creative, clearly over the final, you know, six months of 2022, we have seen a legitimate sea change in this company in terms of the quality of television, the quality of storytelling, the quality of wrestling, people being able to show what they can do, and just a enhanced product that is getting higher ratings, more attention, and selling more tickets. And a lot of it has come because of Triple H. He, you know, like the bar to make improvements was so low. You just had to make basic changes to make a lot of people excited again. Mm -hmm. He's brought guys back. That's been fun. You just want things to make sense and to just generally be entertaining and not feeling like it's pandering, not feeling like it's so directly aimed toward children that it's, it's not aimed toward you. And Triple H has, has done that. He's a mm-hmm. wrestling guy with that background. And it's ultimately nullified, I think, a lot of the criticisms AEW long had of, of WWE. I mean, you've got the Jericho Appreciation Society being sports entertainers. Well, now you've got people on WWE saying wrestler again. You've got <laughs> people saying wrestling. You've got mentions of other companies like these are things that anybody could have done. Like it didn't have to be it's, Triple H isn't the genius for making some of these changes. Uh, but but, you know, his his history with NXT, he had the experience to do this. And we've said it basically ever since then on the pod is that we rarely have an ugly on our good, bad and ugly anymore. You know, yeah. th- there's plenty of bads and stuff that come, but nothing feels horrible. Nothing feels like a waste of time. And I think that's the biggest compliment uh, of the Triple H era so far. We're wrestlers in a wrestling ring. Let's just freaking wrestle. Like just being able to hear that from Drew McIntyre. Mm-hmm. I think it was Kevin Owens. He did that with it. Yes, you're, you're right. That was just a microcosm, of course, of all of the changes. Um, also in July on the 23rd, Jonathan Gresham got into it with Tony Khan. And that was just the latest following a year of what had been not, not a year, six, seven months, I'm sorry of dissatisfaction from wrestlers in and around AEW. It actually started in late 2021. Big Swole called out Tony. He responded to her in like some unhinged New Year's Eve rant. So even if we did the show last year, we wouldn't have been able to cover that. Leo Rush was among those bringing up problems. And this was just a couple of numerous issues of backstage animosity and tumult in AEW, which we're not going to go in detail all of them. Some of it was wrestler versus wrestler, like the Sammy Guevara and Eddie Kingston situation. Some of it was dissatisfaction with lack of usage and booking. Miro, certainly Malachi Black, Andrade El Idolo, um, you know, people talking to WWE or, you know, there was a rumor that Triple H reached out to people and then saw if they would be interested in coming back, if they could get out of their deal, all that type of stuff. They wanted to leave beyond Triple H, you know, reaching out. The fact that they actually wanted to go back said a lot about the way AEW was or was not using them. But this is all just a roundabout way of covering the topic of the bloom coming off of the AEW rose in 2022. They got like two and a half years 
where the IWC, where fans just said, you know what? AEW is the best. They can do no wrong. Uh, Tony Khan makes good decisions. If something doesn't work, it's not his fault. So on and so forth. But coupling the MJF stuff with some of the booking that was extremely rough for AEW in the middle of the year. And all of this, like I said, just to kind of repeat myself, the bloom kind of came off that rose where people realized, hey, guess what? AEW is a wrestling company, just like WWE is, and not everyone's happy and not everything is sunshine and rainbows. Yeah, I think you laid it out and the biggest one was still yet to come. It was indeed. So let's just keep going here. Uh, July 30th was SummerSlam. And, you know, I think we were not overly enthusiastic, right? For Roman Reigns versus Brock Lesnar, the third match that was scheduled to happen uh, in a calendar year. It came after we thought the WrestleMania match was their last match ever. This one was a last man standing match in the main event of the show. We're going to talk about this first, of course, and then we'll talk about everything else that happened on SummerSlam. But uh, they have that match. It's last man standing. I think I said to you, Chris, it's the match I don't want to see, but the stipulation I hate. There's no, (laughs) this is going to be that good. And then Brock Lesnar rides out to the ring in a tractor and everything completely changed. Of course, the spot of Lesnar using the tractor to pry the ring up from its base on the concrete and tip it backwards with Roman Reigns, the visual of Roman Reigns, tumbling backward down the ring outside, uh, Lesnar going wild, hitting an F5 on Paul Heyman. Uh, You know, Roman Reigns eventually standing on top of a pile of junk that was on top of Brock Lesnar to, to finally end their feud as the conquering champion. There's probably nothing that happened in WWE this year that exceeded my expectations more than this. The Lesnar tractor situation is a moment of the year contender and the Reigns Lesnar match is a match of the year contender. Yeah, it it, it was. I, I actually watched some of that on Monday. Um, hopefully it's done now for good. Again, maybe this is something that was different if Cody Rhodes was, was still around, but they gave us a moment. They gave us some sports entertainment and that's the kind uh, that works. Now, Logan Paul and Pat McAfee also wrestled on the show. I don't think we really need to go into that, but we would be remiss if we did not mention that we got a Becky Bianca rematch that was very good, not as good as a WrestleMania match, but still extremely entertaining. And then following that match, which this was the opening match of the entire show of SummerSlam, and it was really the first moment where we said, holy shit, things are going to be different under Triple H. Because after that match ended, and it seemed like they had finally made good, Bailey returned to WWE, long-awaited return from a torn ACL, but along with her came Io Sky, the former Io Shirai, who was on NXT, still signed to WWE, but there was a lot of rumors that she was going to leave the company and go back to Japan, and Dakota Kai, who got rehired, and we would later learn that they are called Damage Control, and they've been a trio that has been a prominent part of both Raw and SmackDown over the remainder of the year. Chris, I remember popping, seeing Bailey come back, and then the consecutive returns, debuts, whatever you want to call them, of EO and Dakota. I was popping, you know, as much as someone can possibly pop. The the the, the bag was full and steam was escaping because that was a fantastic moment. Yeah, it was good to see Becky back. Uh, sorry, Bailey back after missing so much time with the fans coming back. She had. I don't think she had done her heel character in front of fans yet if i recall correctly so sounds right yeah eo sky and, and dakota kai i was i was kind of 
whatever on because I just I didn't watch NXT a ton, but I knew people like them and mm-hmm. you know people are mixed on damage control since then. I'm I'm kind of eh, on them still overall, but but uh, Bailey is is a star and it's been it's been great to see her back. She was much missed. Now that was a Saturday show on Sunday, I believe, also in Nashville. We got Ric Flair's last match on the final day of the month, July 31st. It was Flair and Andrade against Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal in a tag team match. And Chris, first of all, before I talk, did you see this? I did not. Okay. So uh, bless your heart that you didn't. This was sad. (laughs) I saw highlights. I heard it was, I saw highlights and it looked bad. It was sad. They did a heart attack spot. There was blading, gushing blood. Rick could barely move halfway through it. Something I wish I never watched. And you know what? We don't need to talk about it anymore. That was the final thing that happened in July, moving into August from the 5th through the 8th, uh, Karrion Cross and Dexter Loomis both got rehired and returned to WWE. Loomis made his main roster debut. Karrion Cross, of course, returned to the main roster after that gimp gladiator gimmick or whatever the hell he did previously under Vince McMahon. They also announced the WWE Women's Tag Team Championship Tournament. Chris, I think what's notable about Cross and Loomis briefly is both of their returns were really exciting. Cross, of course, attacking Drew McIntyre in the segment with Roman Reigns. Loomis coming out of the crowd. In fact, I think a lot of people didn't even know it was him initially on that first uh, time that he showed up. I thought both were just really cool moments, uh, them showing up on the main roster. This this was a key Triple H point because you could not care about carrying Cross or Dexter Loomis or not know much about them, but the way they were presented was inherently interesting. So you kind of wanted to see what happened next. And that's exactly what you have to do. That's how you bring people back into interesting ways. Yeah, for sure. Now, a couple days later, uh, CM Punk made his return to AEW coming out of that foot injury. And he cuts that promo. Now, we didn't know what was going to come. But he cuts that promo where he calls out Hangman Adam Page and he wants him to come to the ring and all that stuff happens. And of course, Page doesn't. But Punk basically came back. He's like, hey, I want my championship back. And Mox, I want to challenge you. So... That happened on the 10th. Uh, the next week on Dynamite, Kenny Omega made his long-awaited return after recovering from multiple injuries. He came back. He did not look right. He looked like there was a lot of ring rust. He still needed to shake some stuff off of him. And, you know, he would end up making a second return, which we will talk about a little bit later. But Chris, uh, anything that you want to say about Punk Omega uh, in those two weeks? Good to see Kenny Omega back, especially after being gone for such a long period of time. It was a I didn't care for the way they introduced him, which I know people like I did. It wasn't something I cared about. I think he wrestled right in a in a shirt, uh, in a shirt, long sleeve shirt, long sleeve shirt. Yeah, kinesiology tape and stuff. Yeah, it was kind of weird, but just good to see him back. It was it was Um, the next day. WWE uh, closed NXT UK or they announced, I should say, the closure of NXT UK. Uh, and they were set to launch NXT Europe. Now, titles in early September, the NXT UK titles got unified with the NXT uh, championships. Basically, all the people on the NXT roster won them from the NXT UK roster. Now, some of those talents are, of course, in NXT right now. Um, Others are still under contract and are expected to appear back on television once NXT Europe launches in early 2023, and others did get released and currently are wrestling on the independent scene. But NXT UK really did become what black and gold NXT used to be when NXT made the turn to 2.0. So it was kind of sad to see it go. 
but it just wasn't exactly working the way it was supposed to. The pandemic had a lot to do with that. It forced them to tape everything in the studio, which they basically never left. They canceled takeovers. It just didn't really work. NXT Europe makes a lot more sense to do it by a continent as opposed to going with the union of the United Kingdom or whatever that is officially referred to as, perhaps one of you uh, can educate me. It always made more sense to do Europe, um, to do Europe, Africa, Asia, things like that. And hopefully that is the direction uh, that they will be going, as it seems like Triple H is going to be launching this worldwide takeover that he has wanted to launch uh, for quite some time. Chris, anything on the NXT UK closure before we keep going? No, I didn't. I watched it when it launched, but then the pandemic happened pretty quickly and I just kind of never caught up with it afterward. Now, on that date, the 18th through the 22nd, there were a number of developments on WWE television. We don't have to go in deep on these, but Roman Reigns interacted with Sami Zayn for the first time. That was in August. And that began that storyline. Uh, Johnny Gargano signed with WWE, debuted on that Raw. I believe it was in Montreal, I think. Um, yes. Or, yep. uh, yeah. Or uh, it was, was in or, Canada. One of them in Canada. Yeah. It was in Canada. I think it was Montreal that he got a huge reaction. It was very exciting to see him there, but that was a bunch of stuff that developed um, in late August. And then to conclude the month on the 24th, we got the very strangely rushed and put on television, John Moxley, CM Punk, AEW championship match, Punk being the champion, Mox, of course, being the interim champion. They did it one week before All Out, and Mox just completely squashed Punk, who sold his foot injury seconds into the match. And on the same show, or on the same week, Thunder Rosa relinquished her AEW title, and, and AEW decided to crown an interim champion. That's amid a bunch of backstage controversy uh, involving Thunder Rosa. But Chris, uh, that squash between Mox and Punk, it was one of the most, I don't say shocking in a good way. I saw that transpire, and I was like, what the hell are they doing? That was like the apex of the shitty booking period that AEW had gone through. I didn't get it at the time. I still don't think it worked. Even if CM Punk, none of nothing had blown up, I still think it was it was it was dumb. The entire point was to create the next segment where Punk says where where Ace Steel comes out and convinces Punk that with the people of Chicago behind him, he can come back and actually win. Like it was totally bizarre at the time. I thought it was. We all thought it was, oh, CM Punk still actually can't wrestle, so they're just going to write him off here. Right. And that would have been fine. We like And, and by we the way, better to do that on Dynamite than on a pay-per-view. Yes, yes. And so we thought, oh, they're kind of writing him off, whatever. But then they didn't. It was just bizarre at the time, incredibly corny, and just kind of, an in, honestly, it, it, it felt like a WWE type of, something old WWE would do, not something that, like, pro wrestling AEW would do. It was just, it was well, bizarre. Well, think about this. People screamed and cried about Becky Lynch and Bianca Belair a year earlier at SummerSlam. Mm -hmm. And people were trying to defend this a year later yeah. on Dynamite when it made be, just as much sense as that did. I don't think, I didn't see a lot of people defending it, to be fair. A lot of the AEW people there I were know some. didn't like it, didn't like it, it either. There were some who were like, well, I guess if you're going to do this, you do this. They, they were trying to hope it worked out, but... To be fair, it was largely panned. It, no, no, definitely. It was largely and it was largely panned by the majority. There's no question about that. Uh, it was also just strange that it was like, why would everyone thought like, oh, why would Tony Khan book this on Dynamite? He must have something up his sleeve for All Out. What he had mm -hmm. up his sleeve was the promo segment that came the following week on Dynamite. 
And then obviously we transpired at All Out, which we are almost at. We're going to get there momentarily. Now, before All Out, because we are going in order, Chris, on September 3rd, WWE had Clash at the Castle in Cardiff, and we got Gunther versus Sheamus, match of the year contender. No doubt about that. We also had uh, the Roman Reigns, Drew McIntyre match, another match of the year contender, something that you and I were psyched up for. We thought there's at least some chance Drew might actually end his reign, and certainly the crowd in Cardiff wanted that to happen. Instead, we saw the debut of Solo Sokoa, who over these last few months has had a great rookie year on the main roster in WWE. A notable show, Chris, for its location, probably the best WWE crowd of the year for a pay-per-view or a premium live event. I think it was already changed at this time. Uh, The debut of Sokoa on the main roster, as I said, both matches were high quality and really just top to bottom, a fantastic show. Awesome show. I love when they, it was the first, you know, England pay-per-view since... uh, United Kingdom, yes. Since it's a United Kingdom pay-per-view. Since the SummerSlam in the 90s. Since SummerSlam 92, not counting Insurrection and stuff that wasn't really canon or whatever. I I remember watching this. I didn't watch the whole thing live because it was the first weekend of college football and I was in the press box at the Atlanta Falcons Stadium for Georgia, Oregon, watching Roman Reigns uh, drew on my computer during the game. And I, I think this is one of the best matches of the year just because of the energy of the crowd and everything. And I really thought Drew was about to get it. And the Solo Sokoa interference at the time, you're like, ah, you know, pull it away. I get it. But it's Solo Sokoa. What exactly does he mean? I think given time, mm-hmm. Solo has proven has proven himself to be worthy of being in the bloodline of being a force. And it has made, in hindsight, that moment even more impactful. So it, it made the was, moment more impactful. It's made Roman Reigns title reign. More impactful. Yes. And the bloodline. This was, yeah, that was one of the best matches of the year, one of the shows of the year, and we'll get into that in, in the awards later. But uh, I, this is something I hope they do more frequently is go over to the United Kingdom for shows because the crowd was awesome. Now, just over 24 hours later, we get AEW all out. And a lot of stuff happened on the show. But what matters is that CM Punk beat John Moxley, yes, in Chicago, in the main event of the show to win the AEW World Championship back after losing it, technically, two weeks prior in that um, match, squash, whatever you want to call it, on Dynamite. So it was one thing for Punk to win, and the crowd was super excited, obviously, because it was Chicago. And then AEW holds their post-show press conference, which they do after every pay-per-view. And that began what has been affectionately termed Brawl out. Uh, CM Punk sits up there eating muffins and drinking soda or seltzer of some kind. And he takes shots at the elite. He takes shots at Hangman Page. I think he called him an empty headed fuck, something like that. And all the while he is going on this rant, he's talking to reporters and, and he's angry about reporters talking about Colt Cabana and a bunch of shit with him. And Tony Khan is sitting there with his thumb up his ass nervously nodding along because his favorite wrestler is right next to him and he's going off on an absolute tangent. Now, you know, credit to Punk. It was an all-time tangent. You know, in terms of a rant, like, you know, it, it was epic and, and memorable, but certainly uh, the things he said and the context in which he said them uh, were absurd and were only to the short-term and long-term detriment of AEW. And then after he finishes speaking, 
he says something to the effect of, and if anyone has a problem with anything I just said, well, you know where my locker room is. Feel free to come find me. And so they did. Uh, the elite, Kenny <laughs> Omega, the Young Bucks, and apparently AEW's legal counsel as well, along with, I think, like Michael Nakazawa and Brandon Cutler and some producers, uh, walk into CM Punk's locker room, mixed stories about how they got in there. I think Punk's side said they super kicked down the door, they kicked down the door, and then I made a joke that they super kicked down the door. Um, but they kicked down the door and stormed in, and whatever the case, they, they entered the locker room one way or another. A steel chair was thrown. CM Punk's dog had to get saved. Ace Steel allegedly bit Kenny Omega like he's a dog. And there's just this massive explosion. Still to this day, no public statement or comments about it from Tony Khan. Um, Three days later, Chris, on the 7th, AEW is forced to vacate the world championship because CM Punk was suspended. They also were forced to vacate the newly crowned Trio's champions, the elite, the inaugural champions of the title, because the elite were suspended. Uh, All those guys, of course, got suspended. The personnel backstage, many of them got suspended as well. And AEW entered what has been by far their biggest, most controversial period in the company's history. I remember we were recording the post show for that. <laughs> we were As doing the was going on. And yeah. I was like reading the live tweets of it. I was like, CM Punk saying some stuff here. I think we're, we're going to, we should kind of get into a bit. And then we got into it more a few days later. Yeah. Just, just unbelievable. And I, I think the line, it's like, I'm old and I'm tired and I'm surrounded by children was, was like <laughs> one, of, one of the, I, I don't think we've added it as a drop to the show, but like it just, it works in so many scenarios. Uh, just it was funny and just also incredibly unprofessional for someone who complains that people don't come to him with things for him to just do that at a public press conference media scrum afterward was just completely unprofessional. Tony Khan finally did the things that he had to do to take control over his talent. Um, it, It just, we said at the time, it was just a complete lack of leadership to allow that to happen. Um, lack of professionalism from CM Punk to say all those things. And yeah, I don't think we've heard from CM Punk since. And who knows if we will or not. It's just really a, a sad ending to everything because CM Punk at All Out in AEW was something we had dreamed about for years. And it seemed like, you know, he seemed to be enjoying it. The FTR talked about how great he was. But personalities, alpha personalities clash, and it's up to leadership to keep that in order clearly they didn't and AEW has had to crawl out of a pretty big hole after that for a year in which almost every pay-per-view was overshadowed by something else some other drama happening around the company this was the climax of it all yeah when really it was like all right something has to change here after all of this happened and it put them in a hole that they've continued to kind of have to work their way out of you know, here we sit four months later, basically, and they're really just starting to truly like climb out of it to the degree where people are forgetting about it and moving on and, and all that type of stuff. Let's not forget, CM Punk, as of right now, remains an employee of AEW. They have not released him yet. Um, I would assume at least part of that is because he was injured in this match. And even if he was not suspended for what he said in the press conference, again, which Tony Khan sat idly by and allowed him to say without stopping him or 
saying anything or, or getting involved at all. Um, but he was also severely injured and would have been out like seven or eight months as it was. So he would have had to relinquish the AEW World Championship for the second time anyway, even if this did not happen. That's the craziness. And by the way, what did we talk about, Chris? Um, MJF, you know, sitting out and kind of overshadowing uh, what happened, whatever show that was, uh, Revolution, I think it was, right? MJF was uh, double or no, I think you're right. MJF Wardlow, I think was Revolution. Um, Then MJF returns at All Out only for that to get overshadowed itself by the CM Punk situation. MJF returned in the mask in that casino ladder match or whatever it was. He wins the title opportunity with the help of a group that we would later learn is the firm. And then he shows up and he plays Tony Khan's voicemail and reveals himself. And that whole deal happened. And that just got completely overshadowed by this. That was the biggest issue with AEW. Is like, we're not talking about their stories. We're talking about their drama and work shoots can work to an extent, but if it becomes at the expense of other things that you're trying to push, then that's a problem. And MJF came back getting cheers in Chicago, people chanting MJF, MJF at the moment. Nobody really liked the mask, you know, reveal chip thing at the time anyway. Uh, But they couldn't even basically tell that story after the show because they had to do damage control. Right. No one really cared anymore. I mean, it was great that MJF was back, certainly, but it was completely overshadowed. And that was a huge, um, a huge fail across the board, really. And by the way, I think you mentioned earlier, Chris, that you loved my rant on uh, the Gunther name change. My rant on Tony Khan is eons better. It's maybe my yes. number one, my number one of all time. So if you want to go back and listen to the uh, rant, it was not on the incident analysis. I believe it was on the show after uh, one of the shows afterward. Uh, you can find it, read the episode descriptions. If you want to hear uh, something that Silver King can do a little Barry Horowitz and pat myself on the back on, it is that. Uh, we'll keep going here on the 5th of September. Braun Strowman returned to WWE on Raw. That was a huge moment that people were really excited for. Later in the month, on the 21st, uh, Soraya, uh, former page in WWE, signed with AEW. And then I think she spoke for the first time. It was on the 28th that month with that really awkward segment with all the women in the ring trying. She's like, I'm going to restart a revolution here uh, in AEW. You know, has it worked? Hasn't it? There have definitely been better matches uh, since she's come back. Her match against Britt Baker was okay, but it is cool that Soraya got cleared and returned to wrestling. Yes, just awesome to see Paige back, Soraya back, someone like several other wrestlers, you know, injuries. And she's still only like 30, 31 years old. Like, she's yeah. like, it really was cut short. So just awesome to see her back. Before the month was out, we also had Candice LeRae uh, re-sign with WWE. I believe her contract expired uh, while she was off having her baby. And then Roman Reigns on the 23rd, 26th, in, in that period of time, accepted Sami Zayn as an honorary ooze, which was one of the highlight moments of the year in terms of an in-ring segment. Uh, that certainly was among the best, I would say, Chris. Yeah, we, we they ripped off the shirt. We thought he was going to be kicked out finally. And then he provides him with the honorary ooze shirt. One of many kind of memeable moments it would turn out to be from this storyline. For sure. Now, October started on another sad note as October 1st, uh, Antonio Inoki died, one of the most important men in professional wrestling history. Certainly, of course, um, huge in Japan. Uh, the owner of New Japan Pro Wrestling from when he founded it in 1972 all the way until 2005 when he sold the controlling controlling stake of the company. He, he ended up going into politics in Japan and just always remained involved 
in wrestling. Of course, him uh, and Muhammad Ali certainly had uh, numerous uh, interactions that were particularly notable um, for sports fans and kind of helped bring pro wrestling into popular culture uh, during that time when they were together. But it was a big loss for wrestling as a whole. And that's how uh, October kicked off. Really, it was Antonio Inoki and Scott Hall. Those were the two um, deaths this year that that rang the most bells for people, that, that certainly commanded their attention. And there were others, of course, that died as well. But those two certainly uh, stood out. Now, as October pr- progressed into the fourth, uh, NXT officially moved away from the 2.0 label that so many of us hated, especially seeing it from black and gold transition into the Nickelodeon throw-up era of NXT. It moved into what at the time I called the white and gold era of NXT. That's what I thought. It's more like the fire era of NXT based on their logo and the design and everything that they're doing now. But it's certainly um, the NXT developmental product that was created during the 2.0 switch, uh, but now moving a little bit closer to what NXT used to be, where you see main roster superstars come down and work with talent, um, really focused on the in-ring product while simultaneously telling stories and developing characters, personalities, and just wrestlers in totality. So it's been a huge improvement what we've gotten from NXT since this change has happened. It's been much more than just surface level, but really uh, you've seen over this last couple months of 2022, the ratings are increasing for NXT. The interest is returning to NXT. And there were changes that always needed to be made from black and gold into current. But what's happening right now does seem to be the best incarnation of NXT that we've gotten in a few years. Yeah, I mean, I liked two. I, I don't watch it a ton, so I'm not going to say a ton, but I liked 2.0, the idea of it. And seems like they have basically just kind of tweaked it a little bit to make it a bit more professional looking, which isn't isn't a bad thing. Now, a few days later, on the 8th of October, Bray Wyatt returned to WWE, culminating a month long tease involving the White Rabbit song, the the red lights and all the stuff happening on WWE live events, numerous teases with QR codes that took fans on one of the most interesting journeys that we've gone on, uh, leading to the debut or return of a professional wrestler. Really, I compare it closest to like that countdown to Jericho that we got or, or the um, when Jericho came back, that's that second time in WWE. And there were all yeah, the coded the messages, me, save us Y2J. Y2J. Yeah. That, that's what I was talking about. Yeah. Th- that was a big moment where people who don't pay attention to wrestling a ton, like kind of knew what was going on, heard what was going on um, to, to, for that. to That was one of the surprising releases of, of previous years. This was a no brainer to bring him back. He hadn't popped up anywhere else. So there was still a big mystery behind it. To me, it's largely been a letdown since then. You know, <laughs> nothing's really happened. But, you know, at the moment, um, good to have him back. Yeah. And I should note, by the way, that was at WWE Extreme Rules in Philadelphia that he returned. I did forget uh, to mention that. But yes, the really the culmination leading into this was so unique and exciting. And WWE did get a lot of uh, social media attention and press coverage from this. And certainly Bray Wyatt being back in WWE, along with Braun Strowman one month earlier, those were two huge returns uh, that fans definitely wanted back. From the 7th to 10th, uh, WWE changed its broadcasting teams. Um, Legato Del Fantasma debuted. But even more kind of notable, Carl Anderson and Luke Gallows re-signed with WWE and returned as part of the OC alongside AJ Styles. They did this while Carl Anderson was still the never open weight champion in New Japan. And not only that, he has since defended the title 
and remains the never openweight champion in New Japan. So very interesting, obviously something that never would have happened previously under Vince McMahon, but the OC is back together. And even though, Chris, I was not overly fond of them being re-signed, uh, to this point, it's been quite entertaining. Yeah, like, I, I don't love the Good Brothers, Brothers necessarily, but like, they're good to have around. They're a good tag team. Them and AJ has actually been a lot of fun. It's been fun that they've mm-hmm. leaned into kind of the fun humor side of this a bit. Kind of what we saw out of Anderson and Gallows when they were on BTE for quite a while, which they, they were very funny in that. So that was good to see them. And then you mentioned the broadcasting team changes. It's been a few months. We're still not super behind uh, Kevin Patrick in that role, but they haven't changed it. Yeah, SmackDown's still good. Michael Cole and Wade Barrett, Raw. Kevin Patrick and Corey Graves really struggling. No question. Yeah, you know, I guess that was one of the um, news things we did include, which was Pat McAfee going to college game day. Oh, good point. Yeah, Pat McAfee left. Missing missing the second, largely the second half of the the year on commentary. Yeah, I would. I don't have the exact date because I did. You're right. I did forget to include it, but I would assume that was at some point in September when college game day started. He left WWE uh, and joined that show with ESPN. Uh, with the expectation is that he will return to WWE once the college football season is over, maybe late January, maybe early February. But the expectation is he will return and go back on commentary. But we will certainly find out uh, when that does happen. Speaking of broadcasters, uh, Renee Paquette signed with AEW on October 12th and made her debut on Dynamite. That was certainly something that has always been expected, but she's doing a great job there so far. Yep. Makes sense for a lot of reasons. I got the Mox book for Christmas. I haven't read it yet, but um, always good when husband and wife are together. And then October 19th, Hangman Page fought Mox on Dynamite. He suffered a concussion during the match. Uh, the match had to end early, of course. He got carted off. And there was a scheduled you know, interaction with MJF where he was going to come down and challenge Mox and, and put the chip on the line for a future date, obviously. And they really had a difficult improv transition to get into that planned post-match segment, but it was a, you know, certainly a um, scary sight. You know, we talked about uh, Ray Phoenix dislocating his elbow, obviously Biggie breaking his neck, Hangman Page suffering his concussion on Dynamite was one of the scariest moments of the year from an athlete health uh, standpoint. And it seems like he has been cleared to return. Clearly, he's beating up Mox on TV, attacking him, even though they haven't wrestled yet. So in case he's not cleared, in reality, he is. And it's good to see that after basically a month and a half, he was able to come back and uh, be himself again. Good that he's okay. Very scary in the moment, especially because we didn't know if it was something even worse than a concussion. So could have been bad. Thankfully, it's not worse. And really coming out of October, the rest of the year, we haven't necessarily had those major moments, you know, even something as big, of course, as Bray Wyatt returning like in October. But we do have some other things to note across November and December. On the 2nd of November, Jeff Jarrett debuted for AEW. This was shortly after being fired by WWE, where Paul Levesque replaced him in his position by hiring back Road Dog, who, as we mentioned, was fired by WWE earlier in the year. So Jeff Jarrett uh, goes to AEW. Replaced by um, Ro- Jeff Jarrett replaced by the roadie, literally a 1990s storyline playing out in real life. Yeah, in reality, for sure. Uh, you know, I haven't been a f- fond of Jarrett being there. I think putting him on TV was absurd. I still do. But he's there. It's largely whatever. Jim Ross made a comment recently. He thinks AW could get into house shows and Jeff Jarrett could run that. I I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, he's largely been in, inconsequential. On the 5th of November was WWE Crown Jewel, of course, in Saudi Arabia, Blood Money in the Sand. Uh, Roman Reigns and Logan Paul main evented this show. And Chris, I think going in, we both kind of thought this 
could really exceed expectations because we saw already what Logan Paul could do given two opportunities in WWE. This was his third, but even our expectations, I think it's fair to say, were exceeded by the way these two went at it. Obviously, Logan Paul's frog splash off the top rope outside, putting Reigns through the table, a couple false finishes that we also expected to come. Jake Paul showed up for those of you who like the Paul brothers, getting both of them, I'm sure was a big deal. Um, but ultimately, of course, Reigns retained the title, but it certainly was a spectacle and WWE did get a lot of press out of it. Yeah, it was fun. It was way more entertaining than we thought. The jump off the turnbuckle while he was recording it was just, it was a moment. And one of the low-key things to take away from 2022 is that Logan Paul is very, very good at pro wrestling. Like Whatever you think of the guy, you know, good or not, totally fair, but just he understands how to do this business. And when WWE signed him, didn't exactly know what that meant. Um, but to to if we're going to get more of stuff like that, he does feel like he could be a future world champion one day. It's certainly possible with if when there's two titles and if they want to make a, a splash yes. or something, they could definitely do something with Logan Paul on the Monday Night Raw on the 7th of November. Austin Theory had his extremely controversial money in the bank cash. And we've talked about this ad nauseum. I don't really feel like we need to go over it again, why it was so controversial, but he tried to cash in on the United States Championship. And also on that shit same show, the 24-7 championship was officially trashed. And when I say officially trashed, technically it missed the trash can. Uh, Nikki Cross won it off Dana Brooke and then tried to throw it in the garbage. It actually bounced off the lid. One of the more apropos moments of professional wrestling, I would say in 2022. Hated it at the time. Things have worked out for Austin Theory since, but I still think they could have executed it better. Just have him lose the money in the bank briefcase. I don't know. Still don't like it. Yeah, there's a million things they could have done better in that moment. On the 19th of November, we had AEW full gear, their final pay-per-view of the year. MJF, of course, won the AEW championship with the help of William Regal in the main event. Uh, Jamie Hayter won the Women's World Championship, defeating Tony Storm. The Elite returned after suspension only to lose uh, the trios championship match they were contending against Death Triangle. Their return from suspension was about 75 days after they were suspended, probably a 60-day suspension that they just waited, of course, until the pay-per-view to have them come back. But it was a very newsworthy, eventful edition of Full Gear. That said, you know, in the grand scheme of everything that happened in AEW this year, probably the least newsworthy for the purposes of this podcast. Yeah, it felt like the moment AW was finally taking a step forward after a rough couple of months. Um, and I think they've largely continued to take steps forward. This felt like, all right, we're turning the page on what happened and we're moving forward. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. I, li- I like that. Uh, one day later on the 20th, Kyrie, the former Kyrie Sane in WWE, she became the inaugural IWGP Women's Champion in New Japan. This is after she returned to wrestling at stardom. Uh, her old stomping grounds pre-WWE in February of this year. So Kyrie making her big return to professional wrestling, uh, winning that IWGP Women's Championship, becoming the first women's champion in NJPW history. Certainly a major moment. She seems extremely happy to be back in Japan. And of course, in general, uh, we love Kyrie. Same on the 22nd of November, Dijak returned to TV by uh, showing up in NXT. He is now fully part of that brand. On the 26th of November, we had War Games debut in WWE at Survivor Series. It was Becky Lynch's first match after returning 
on SmackDown, I think one day prior. And we also, of course, in the main event, saw Sami Zayn back the bloodline and Roman Reigns over his longtime best friend, Kevin Owens, in another of the most memorable moments in ring uh, for WWE this year. It was fun to see war games. I still don't love the fact that it replaced the Survivor Series match. I feel like you could just do war games somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Um, So we will see, but it was fun. Yeah, I mean, both matches were executed extremely well, though. I mean, they were very entertaining. Yes. It was the perfect debut of a new match concept on WWE television. So I thought they did a great job there. Uh, Four days after that, uh, William Regal appeared to be on his way out of AEW just nine months after not only joining the company, but starting the immensely popular uh, Blackpool Combat Club, of course, alongside John Moxley, Brian Danielson, and Wheeler Yuta. Mox, of course, was angry at Regal, told him, you know, get out of my face. Uh, you know, I don't want to ever see you again. Of course, he turned his back. And then MJF, in this moment on the 30th, attacked Regal from behind to his surgically repaired neck. He got uh, put on a stretcher. He got ambulanced out of the arena. And it during this time, this two-week period, uh, news broke that he had requested his release from AEW and Tony Khan had granted it because he wants to return, of course, to WWE now that his son is wrestling there. And of course, Triple H, Paul Levesque is in charge. Kind of an unceremonious end to something that never quite hit what we wanted to in terms of the the, the BCC. We loved the idea at the time, loved the shirts, loved the, the Uta match and painting the blood and stuff, but they just never really captured, I think, what they had in terms of an opportunity. And then with William Regal on his way out, you know, it's 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 kind of just in pieces now. Sure. And then moving into December, the final month of the year, two items, both actually related to NXT. The first was NXT Deadline, which was held on the 10th. NXT debuted the Iron Survivor Challenge match, which seemed extremely convoluted in terms of explanation when they were introducing it. Instead, both of them absolutely banged and the concept completely delivered. So it was really cool to see WWE debut a new match concept, especially one that replaced War Games because that clearly got brought up to the main roster. On that show also, New Day won the NXT Tag Team titles, becoming, I believe, the third Triple Crown Tag Team Champions in WWE history behind The Revival and The Street Profits. Uh, Just very notable, I thought, show. One of the best NXT events of the year, if not the best NXT events of the year, singular NXT event of the year. Chris, I forgot whether you went back and watched it after I suggested you do so, but did you happen to see that show? I did not. I did see New Day winning the tag titles, which kind of like Ziggler winning the NXT title, I think is ultimately a good thing for everybody involved. And so I, I think that has worked. Sure. You do need to go back and watch those Iron Survivor matches. You would love both of them, seriously. So make sure uh, at some point, maybe once the football season ends, you go ahead and do that. And then four days after this, after not defending her title on the show, but seeing her championship reign increase to 413 days on December 14th, Mandy Rose was released by WWE one day after dropping that title to the winner of the Women's Iron Survivor Challenge. Roxanne Perez and Mandy Rose ultimately got released because she has an OnlyFans like site uh, where she, you know, for lack of a better term, showed way, way, way more than WWE was willing to allow. So they not only had her drop the title in unceremonious quick fashion, 
uh, but they also released her from the company after multiple years, of course, being under their employ. Uh, lots of what I would call disingenuous takes about WWE releasing her, given the circumstances of the situation. And, you know, again, not to bury Horowitz one more time, but if you want to hear one more rant to wrap up the year, you can listen to the one I did on um, people criticizing WWE for releasing Mandy Rose. But that, to this point, Chris, and luckily, I would say, has been the biggest news story of December 2022. Eventful year, man. We just took more than two hours explaining all of it. It was interesting to kind of just go back and remember certain things that happened this year. Some things felt like they happened yesterday, like Sasha and Naomi walking out. Some of them feel like forever ago, like, you know, like like some things that happened, at, like Liv Morgan winning the title. So, yeah, it's just it was fun to kind of look back at the year and everything, the way it played out. So many unexpected things happening like that always happens in wrestling. But again, monumental changes that nobody would have ever expected coming into the year cm punk blowing up in AEW, vince mcmahon leaving uh, the bloodline still existing Sami Zayn being one of the wrestlers of the year by the end of the year just it cody rhodes leaving AEW for wwe sasha binks and, and Naomi walking hurt. out and, mjf and, nearly walking out crazy yeah just so so much happened now chris a lot of crazy stuff as we just went over happened in 2022 but before we get out of here let's briefly discuss I don't know, some off the wall or just, you know, simple predictions, let's say, that we are going to make for professional wrestling in 2023. Let's keep it to three each, okay? Do it off the top. You give me, I know I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, three predictions for professional wrestling as we transition from 2022 into the new year, 2023. All three three of mine are WWE related. I tried to think of some AEW ones, but it just, it felt like in what was such a, monstrous changing second half of the year for WWE that more could happen. My first prediction, Matt Cardona returns to WWE. The former Zack Ryder. Mm-hmm. It's kind of been rumored about for a while. He's alluded to about alluded to it, made some jokes about it, posted some stuff on social media. He has really truly become one of the kings of the indies in an era where much of that indie talent became AEW. He is the guy traveling everywhere, doing all these shows. He had a heck of a year, honestly. He could probably be he did. wrestler of the year in terms of... And you know what? My bad for not kind of including him a little bit more on this show. You know, actually including him on the show. That's that's my fault. Yeah, 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 yeah. That he, you know, the deathmatch stuff. He really honestly put GCW on the map for a lot of people like myself. You know, I, I went to... Some uh, of that, let me, let's just not forget, a lot of that was 2021. He was injured for a large sure. part of 2022. Okay, I, I may be mixing certain things up, but yeah. I, I saw him at WrestleCon, Russell uh, just in a, in a ballroom uh, into the hallway and doing some stuff. He was everywhere, man. I think he's someone who could make uh, a potential return in WWE uh, and Triple H could be more willing to hear out his ideas. All right, let's, go, second prediction. let's go back and forth. I'll, you give one, I'll one, give one. one. Okay, you go. We'll do that. But I did want to know just on the Matt Cardona thing, um, the rumor even more heavy than Matt Cardona possibly coming back to WWE is that his wife, Chelsea Green, is coming back. To WWE. So mm. that that's a little bit even stronger and lends more credence to your prediction, which I think uh, is important. So I'm, I'm going to go with AEW to start here. I think AEW is going to add a sixth pay-per-view because right now, you know, doing four a year, clearly their, their numbers, their, their sales numbers for these pay-per-views, they're not dropping. So people are spending the $50 and they're willing to go do it. Uh, they added a fifth this past year, of course, with Forbidden Door technically kind of sliding into that role. I could see them doing one more show. So I think AEW is going to go to six uh, pay-per-views. They'll go bi-monthly, uh, which is really, really the appropriate amount of time, I would say, 
between shows, and then you add uh, a couple of Ring of Honor shows along with that, let's say four, I think AEW is going to do 10 events per year, six for AEW itself, and four for Ring of Honor that they want you to pay for outside of watching Dynamite Rampage and then whatever the streaming service is with the Ring of Honor show. I'd welcome it. I'd welcome more shows that were shorter. I, I, I would, I would certainly. <laughs> yes. Take, take 30 to 45 minutes off the rest and put it on a six show. Yeah. yeah. My, my number two prediction. 2023 will be Ronda Rousey's final year with WWE. I don't know what her contract situation is. I know she was up in April, 2021. They re-signed her, but I just feel like over the past years, you know, since she came back, it just hasn't worked. She's not getting good or bad reactions like she used to. She's not as good as she was her first time. That's the wild part. She's worse in the ring. Her, 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 yeah, her, her in ring and just everything seems to just be off compared to it was her first run. Um, I, I, I don't know if she's not into it or is into it. I, I don't know, but I could see. I'm going to predict that this ends up being Ronda Rousey's final year in this kind of experimental run they've done for a few years. Uh, runs its course. So I think that Stone Cold Steve Austin is going to wrestle for a second year in a row. But not only that, I wouldn't be surprised if he wrestles twice in 2023. I think getting him at WrestleMania 39 in Los Angeles is a total no brainer. I don't care if The Rock is going to be there and he does the stuff with Roman Reigns. You have two nights. okay? it's Los Angeles. You need all of your biggest stars there. I think Stone Cold Steve Austin is going to have a match on that show. And I wouldn't be surprised if coming out of that show, he has another match on the next Saudi Arabia WWE show. I think there's going to be one in May. Uh, So either May or October, I wouldn't be surprised if Austin wrestles in one of those and gets a check. Because at this point, if you're going to come back for two matches, you might as well get a big payday by going over to Saudi Arabia if you're Stone Cold. So so, So definitely wrestling one more time, potentially as much as twice for Stone Cold Steve Austin in 2023. What WrestleMania, I'm sorry, Royal Rumble is in San Antonio. So, I mean, it, it is oh, kind of a quick turnaround, but maybe that's a possibility too. So my third prediction is kind of similar, and that is The Rock appears at, but does not wrestle a match at WrestleMania 39 in Los Angeles. You know, we, we've long talked about the idea of Roman versus The Rock, all the different things you could do with the bloodline, the story. I don't feel like it needs it. I don't feel like the bloodline needs the rock in this at all. Um, But I think maybe he does make an appearance that has interactions with Roman in the bloodline, potentially talking about the family, potentially he gives a rock bottom to Roman at something or or to somebody. Uh, I'm not counting his, his previous WrestleMania, you know, 32nd match against uh, Eric Rowan as, as a match. No. Yeah. I don't think we get the rock in a full on match. And I also think that ties into Stone Cold, because if The Rock is wrestling, you're probably not going to have both of them do it. And there is kind of a little pride involved for both of them over who is kind of higher, higher, uh, you know, on the card in terms of that. Mm -hmm. So if Stone Cold is is wrestling, maybe The Rock appears the other night and does not wrestle. Yeah, I think that would be the case no matter what. Austin night one, Rock night two, if they both, you know, show up on the show. And my my last prediction, it's not as exciting as talking about what's going to happen in the ring or whatever. It's more a little business end. But I think two things happen. One, AEW does re-up with Turner. And I think they get a big money deal, but not as big as they expect. Sports rights right now 
are beginning to reach their apex and start, to, they're, they're overcoming the apex. And they're starting to dwindle a little bit in terms of the amount of money. And AEW, even though they are bringing in uh, you know, plenty of viewers, they're ne- not necessarily growing at the rate that they were this time last year when people were expecting them to haul in a massive contract. It's still going to be big, way bigger than it is now. But I don't know that it's going to be massive. But beyond them, uh, there was a report from John Orend, not, not a report, a um, end of year column from John Orend in the Sports Business Journal where he makes his own 2023 predictions. And his prediction was that WWE would not just remain with USA Network for Raw, but that that you know company, uh, whatever that is called now, what is it? Uh, NBC Universal. NBC Universal. Yeah, yeah. I, keep, I keep going back. NBC Comcast, Universal, like, Xfinity, yeah. all that. Uh, but he thinks that they will also get SmackDown and potentially put it on network television on NBC on a different night. And he said that would be the precursor to NBC Universal buying WWE outright, probably a couple of years down the line. I disagree with him. My prediction is that WWE re-ups with not only NBC Universal for Raw on USA Network but also Fox with SmackDown remaining on that network in its same time slot. And the reason for this, Chris, and we just saw this with the Big Ten in college football, is if you can get multiple networks involved, then you get to you know parcel out your product and bring in more money than you do by just going with a single entity. And I don't think WWE, as a publicly traded company, is you know seemingly going to go all in with NBC, nor do I think NBC is going to offer what Fox will offer to keep SmackDown in that time slot, especially with ratings continually staying strong and occasionally going up. I think WWE, they just posted a big number for a taped show this past week, SmackDown. And I think they're going to do a monster number to end 2022 with Roman Reigns and John Cena in that tag team match. So I think WWE remains with NBC and Fox uh, for, of course, Raw and SmackDown respectively. And I do not think a sale comes, certainly in 2023, but I don't think it's coming anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you that Fox loves having WWE and, and what they do and works in with, with Big Ten and stuff like that. You know, the new Big Ten football deal, they are going to try to put more games on Friday nights, you know, when they have more teams. Possible that goes to FS1, possible they move SmackDown to FS1 more frequently in the in the fall. Well, that would certainly that, have that to get negotiated. There's no question about that. Yeah, right. It would have to be worked out, negotiated different things. But Fox is all about live events. You know, mm-hmm. like they, they sold off 20th century. They got rid of the movie business and all that. They're just about news and sports. They, they've got the World Cup. They've just did the bigger Big Ten deal. Uh, they, they're just that is the only thing Fox is doing. And WWE remains one of the highest rated things, uh, both on cable for Raw and on, on network. When and, WWE and don't forget, WWE has been a great partner for them. They want something. WWE basically yes. does it. They put most of their biggest stars on that brand. Their only champion right now is on that brand on their network. The cross promotional opportunities between, like you said, World Cup, but also NFL, college football and WWE. They love that cross promotion. WWE is heavily promoted during NFL and college football games. And it's not that Mm -hmm. NBC can't do that, especially they will now because they're going to have Big Ten in addition to Notre Dame. But it's NBC does not have the sports properties that Fox does. So for WWE, it's more beneficial to be on Fox. And chances are they'll get paid more to stay on Fox as well. So, you know, I I love John's a great reporter. I'm not like crapping on him. I just I believe differently. My prediction is different than his. I think WWE uh, is going to cash in massively. And then after this round of TV rights negotiations, 
it's going to be very interesting to see what kind of number they command, if they even remain on TV or if they go to a streaming affiliate, who knows what's going to happen, you know, five years down the line. Uh, but I think they are going to cash in massively on their next TV rights deal. I agree. All right, Chris. Well, that wraps up our 2022 year in review edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. We went about 40 minutes longer than I expected, but let's just be honest. Summarizing 12 months is extremely difficult to do, more so particularly this year, given the number of major events that transpired. So look, on the way out, let me quickly remind you of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. So don't forget to leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and the five-star review for us on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it here on the show. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, all that good stuff. And you get the opportunity to vote in our Getting Over Awards, a.k.a. The Meaties. Nominations for which are now closed. Look for that coming out. Uh, this week, if it's not out already by the time you are listening to this podcast. And that those awards, I will reiterate, will be uh, on a special show next week right here in the Getting Over podcast feed. Chris, it has been another great year doing the show. It is wild. What are we, a couple months away, coming up on our three-year anniversary here of the Getting Over wrestling podcast. It is absolutely wild. But thank you for making this uh, so much fun, especially, you know, you're not on every uh, AEW show, of course, but on a week-in, week-out basis with the WWE show, all the instant analysis that we do. It's a blast doing this. And thanks for another great year, kind of being along for the ride here on this performance-enhancing audio that we are trying to deliver to the ear holes that are getting over Absolutely. Another good year in the books. And thank you all, our Getting Overheads, for listening to us. I hope you have a fantastic New Year's Eve and a great start to your 2023 for Vintage Chris Benini. This is the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, signing off for the final time in 2022 and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.